Welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. My name is Yorasimos. I have my co-host with me, Joel Rafiti. I'm excited to be allowed to do the intro today, <laughs> but really excited for... Um, Lucky being this- able to change us on things. <laughs> okay. No, no, I love it though. I'm just so excited for this episode that you're about to watch. Um, Dr. Melissa Sell returns for the fifth time, but this time we really wanted to focus on the foundations of German New Medicine, Germanic Healing Knowledge, and really get into Dr. Hammer's story. Who was he? You know, the origins of this uh, amazing knowledge, the five bio- biological laws, and how important it is for us to just, you know, learn this knowledge and, and to reframe our thinking around why our body does what it does. So I'm super excited for everyone to listen to this. Um, so if you get value out of it, share it, share it with the people in your life that are curious and open and want to become more empowered and take more responsibility for their life and for their health. Um, yeah, that's all I have. And without further ado, here is Melissa Sell. You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafiti and Eurosimos. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. Today, the incredible and very popular here at Here for the Truth, Dr. Melissa Sell, returns for her fifth time to this podcast. We're going to link her previous episodes in the show notes, so definitely be sure to check those out. Today, we've brought um, Melissa back on because we felt as though it was imperative to build bridges and build foundations and provide a GNM basics and foundational episode. I know for me, it definitely, you know, I need to hear things multiple times and learn things multiple times before it really sinks in. So some of you may be familiar with this information, but I think there'll still be a lot of value there. But also, this is the podcast that we wanted to create to be shareable, the most shareable for GNM and to introduce others into the world of German new medicine. Mel, good to see you again. Hello, guys. It's so great to be back with you. And yes, starting the new year with a foundation, because you really cannot hear these principles enough to really deeply get them. And that's the thing, is we're trying to get this at a deep, integrated level, not just a surface, not a, oh, yeah, GNM says this about... It's like, you, it's about getting it at the core, because... This knowledge is something we should have been raised with our entire lives. It should just be woven into how everyone communicates. And I see it starting to happen, which is amazing. So yeah, uh, revisiting the basics so that we can really deeply understand how these laws are ever present in every experience, in every minor and major adaptation, every sniffle, every sneeze, that we know where it came from, or at least we can start that curiosity Um project of like, oh, what was it? What could it have been? Because sometimes stuff happens so fast and so subconsciously. And that's one of the major things we'll talk about is how this is a biological reflex. Not every conflict that you have, are you consciously aware of exactly what happened? And so, yeah, we'll get into the the details. Yeah. Awesome. And it's true. Like more and more people are um, being interested in being exposed to this information, especially as you know, the whole conversation around germ theory, terrain theater, terrain theory um, grows and grows. And so, yeah, excited to have you back on, excited to dive into this. But let's kind of let's let's start at the beginning. Like, who is Dr. Hammer? What's a little bit of a story? How did this knowledge first get discovered? Yeah. So Dr. Hammer, he was one of the youngest, I think, medical doctors to have been licensed. You know, he 
early on developed a bunch of patents, a patent for a scalpel, and he, you know, uh, made a lot of money just off of the recurring revenue from the patents that he had created. And he was a very generous, loving medical doctor who just wanted to go treat people for free. Him and his wife were both medical doctors. And in 1978, tragedy struck in his family. And there's actually, if you want the bigger picture of the experience that his family went through, there is a documentary on Netflix called The King Who Never Was. And this tells the story of the crown prince, exiled crown prince of Italy, um, who uh, was the one who ended up shooting the gun that hit Dr. Hammer's son, the bullet that hit Dr. Hammer's son um, while he was sleeping on a boat. You know, it's an absolutely crazy story. And and so Dr. Hammer's 17-year-old son, Dirk, was on this vacation, on this trip with his sister and got shot. And he was, you know, airlifted to the hospital and they tried to help him survive. I think it hit, um, you know, an artery and they had to amputate his leg. So it was an extreme, very intense situation and obviously political because, you know, there was a royal member of a royal family involved in this shooting. And, you know, uh, at first the prince kind of confessed to it and then later he retracted his confession. So there was a lot of drama around that. And so that documentary, you'll see the story, you'll see on um, uh Dr. Hammer's daughter, Birgit, tell the story and how she kind of, you know, was advocating and fought all this time for the truth to come out. And so it's very dramatic. And they give very <laughs> a very short um, piece about Dr. Hammer and his crazy cancer theories. And, uh, and they just kind of go on. So it doesn't get into Dr. Hammer and, you know, the amazing discovery he made through this tragedy. So after the shooting up his son, and his son ended up dying in his arms um, in, I believe it was December of 1978. In 1979, a few months after the loss, Dr. Hammer developed testicular cancer. And he, you know, had a theory that this had to be connected to the loss of his son because he'd never had, there's no cancer in his family. There's no, uh, you know, he had never been sick before. There was just no reason other than this huge thing happened to him. Um, and then in 1981, he was working um, as an, an oncology ward in a Bavarian cancer clinic, and he was able to uh, talk to all of these patients. And he saw a theme. He saw a pattern that every person who had some type of cancer had a severe experience, a severe shock in their life that preceded the development of their cancer. But beyond just, you know, a shock, a stress and cancer, he saw a specific theme. So every man who had testicular cancer specifically had a type of loss. Every woman with glandular breast cancer specifically had a worry, a deep concern for a loved one. Everyone with colon cancer had something indigestible that they could not process. And so he started to see a pattern emerge from these, uh, these cancers, these experiences. And, he, and he's starting to have this realization. Did I just you know, come across, did I just discover a, a pattern, a map for understanding how cancer develops? And he started having dreams and his son Dirk was in the dream saying, yes, geared, you're, you're onto it. There's still more things that you have to discover. And so Dr. Hummer, he said that he went weak in the knees as he's like coming to this realization, like, could this be true that every cancer that develops, that there's a specific uh, conflicting 
traumatic shock that the person goes through that leads to the development of this of this of the cancer. And so he uh, kept, you know, researching, kept talking to patients, kept reading over. He would go into and read over the patient files and see, you know, what happened to these people that have these cancerous diseases. And so he put together this map and it just kept coming to him in, in phases. You know, every um, the biological laws actually developed over the 80s. I think that what was 87, he finalized like the fourth biological law. But even in 1981, that's when his original thesis was ready, where he's like, hey, medical world, guess what? There is a systematic understanding for why cancer happens. And no, you think if you're, you know, looking at this through the lens of, uh, Medicine, you know, medicine and science is simply about what's true. Excuse me. I had a couple of conflicts a couple of weeks ago in my still clearing out. Um, And so you think that, oh, here, hey, guys, look what I found. Look what I am finding consistently in every single one of these cases. And he presents this thesis to the University of Tübingen and they just shut him out. Crazy man. Crazy theory. We won't even look at this. We cannot, you know, even acknowledge your thesis, your paper. And so Dr. Howard just kept going. He kept looking at cases. He kept uh, bringing these five biological laws together. And so now we have this amazing map, this amazing understanding of how the body adapts. That's the big thing here is it's all about meaningful adaptation. Before we thought that the body met, made mistakes, that something was going wrong, something was screwed up, Something, you know, in either the genes or something has come in and caused chaos to occur in the body. And what he found is that this is not chaos. This is meaningful adaptation to a shock, to a conflict, to something that caught the organism off guard. Because he also found this doesn't just apply to humans. This applies also to animals and plants and that a shock causes the tissues of that organism to mobilize, to activate, and to transform. And the body has this amazing ability to transform our tissues in the moment of a shocking conflict in order to be better capable of surviving that situation. And so each of the biological laws teaches us and shows us how these adaptations take place, looking down to the tissue level of the organism, looking at embryology and understanding what's the purpose? What does this tissue do? Why is it here? You know, do you think we have just tissues in our body that don't do something? Every tissue is purposeful. It's meaningful. And by understanding these origins, understanding these pieces, like Dr. Hummer, he studied nature, you know, and he had had a very rich um, background also in in theology as well as medicine. So he's has uh, he he spoke many many different languages. He has this very deep understanding of kind of the soul of a human. And his I believe the first book he wrote was um, Cancer Disease of the Soul. You know, and so looking at the psyche, the soul of the of the organism as being this initiating um, detector for whatever it is in the environment that was shocking, that was conflicting. So incredible. And like, yeah. I've heard this story before, but you know, I got goosebumps hearing it again just now. And, you know, we talk about how everything has purpose and everything has meaning. And like, even in the death and loss of one son, one of the most profound systems of healing that we have today was born and created as a result, you know, so even the macro, the macro cosmic purpose, um, is present here. Yeah. 
Yeah, the discovery of of these laws, you know, stemming from that is, uh, you know, it's pretty incredible. I wanted to, and you'll probably maybe go into this when you talk about the first law, but when he had presented his findings, he had already, you know, explored all the brain scans at that point. So he kind of learned that there was obviously there had to be some, these, he discovered that there were these patterns, but like, what was the like controlling mechanism that was, you know, you know, a part of these patterns. And so he started looking into brain scans. Is that correct? Yes, totally. And so the brain scan is such a core component of this because, you know, so here's something happening in the emotional life of this person, a loss, a death, a separation, and something's happening on the organ level. So he sees these two pieces, but he knew there had to be something in the brain that, because the brain integrates what's going on, um, you know, in the outside world and in the inside world. And it was the brain scan really that brought this, this map together in a cohesive scientific, reliable manner, because in the brain, when there is the conflict shock that catches you off guard, he found that every time a person had this, you know, a specific type of shock, a specific circle would show up in the brain every single time. So every person uh, who had a specific type of cancer would always have a circle in a particular part of the brain. So this was a big part of this mapping, of this reliability, of this scientific re reproducibility that doesn't exist in any other system. Every other system within the medical world is all about statistics. This percentage of people who eat this kind of food get this kind of cancer. This percentage of people who smoke um, develop this type of cancer. And so it's never 100%. But what he found was it was always there. There was always a circle in the brain. Every time a person reported having this particular type of emotional experience and had a particular cancer. So that's the psyche brain organ connection. That's the thing that allows this to be not just a, you know, a mind, body, spiritual, um, psychosomatic, which has been around for a really long time. I mean, ancient people, all sorts of writings know that the, the, the disease is in the soul. It's dis-ease in something in the soul of the person that's creating the, you know, aberrations or abnormalities as they would be, you know, described before in the organ. But the, you know, the advance that Dr. Hammer brought to this is the specific scientific, specific and scientific reproducibility of the brain scan, that it's always like this. How could it be always like this? And that's because these are laws of nature. And that's why he was confident to call them and describe them as laws of nature, because he never saw them to be inaccurate. There always was this pattern. The pattern always existed. And there are actually 126 different points. So for one biological program, Every there's criteria for each of the biological laws, each of the uh, phases of the law of two phases. And so these points, it would be kind of scientifically impossible to have these points be present in the cases. But he found every time a person had a specific type of shock, specific impact in the brain, specific tissue adaptation, and it would always go through this pattern, this pattern, this pattern. And that's the thing that allows us to um, be something that we can rely upon. And it's mathematical. And that's another really amazing thing is that you can calculate how long you're going to be in a symptom phase based on how long you were in the conflict. And so you can predict. And the uh, being able to predict by having a pattern and a map for this brings such peace. And that's really, you know, like the truth and the beauty of German new medicine, the Germanische Heilkunde, this amazing healing knowledge is you no longer have to fear what your body is up to. You can understand it through the lens of meaningful adaptation to an unexpected shock 
and your brain is doing something specific, your organs are doing something specific. And when you find a solution, which is the royal art in this model, is to find a solution. What is it that's going to bring peace to your soul? What is it that's going to cause this struggle, this trouble to fall away? And that is, um, you know, what most people are like, oh, what's it going to be? And you have to know yourself, which I know as you guys talk about a lot on this podcast is knowing yourself, understanding, you know, what is it that I need in order to release this, in order to evolve and move forward? I mean, when you get into understanding how this causes you to evolve as a person, um, it's really amazing. Again, this is such a gift. Yeah. I love, um, very, very hermetic as well in how it's balanced in terms of the length of the conflict being equivalent to the length of the healing phase. And, you know, this is a signpost of all of nature, you know, so to me, that is very much so, um, a green check mark. Yeah. Um, so do you want to dive a little deeper into, um, the biological law? Cause I love the synchronous relationship between the psyche, the brain and the organ actually, but first. Because I feel like some people who may be watching this for their first time are being exposed to this or don't know too much, and the the wheels may be turning their mind. But but what about? But what about? What doesn't fall under the the GNM model? Let's start there, and then we can kind of get into. Yes, perfect. So there are a few things that don't fall under this, and one of them is poisoning. So when a poison gets into the body, that uh, the body immediately responds to it. It's going to eject a poison from the body. And so poisoning, um, toxicology, you know, there's all sorts of things that we're being exposed to that, um, you know, can harm, direct, cause direct harm to the body. Um, also injury. And so when there's an injury, uh, often, you know, from from my perspective, I, I kind of take a, you know, a little bit different um, way that I describe certain things. Like, because I think when an injury happens, it's always meaningful. <laughs> it's always... Something else is going on. This external injury is is uh, giving energetic expression to something that you're not acknowledging. I know that for myself, if I if there's something going on that I'm not really taking care, I will cut myself when I'm chopping vegetables. And so I think that injuries really do kind of have a spiritual meaning. But um, uh, formally, the GNM perspective, um, poisoning, injury, and malnutrition. You know, so these would be three things that are exceptions that are kind of like their own thing to look at. But um, from my perspective, I think that an injury, you know, if you're uh, hurting yourself, if you're exposing, if you're getting exposed to toxic substances, why is that? I also think that that has some type of reflection, you know, of what, you know, what is going on without is something is a reflection of going on within. Um, but, you know, officially, those are the three things that are exceptions to the biological, um, to the the five biological laws and GNM. Yeah. And is it like intense poisoning? Because this is where there's a lot of nuance and people will make the argument like, well, we're being exposed to, you know, chemicals in the environment or chemicals and vaccines. And like, I understand, like, we don't have all the answers. We haven't done all the studies because there isn't billions and billions and billions of dollars of funding going towards GNM. But like, maybe you could just talk a little bit about that nuance, because I know it's a conversation that's being had. Totally. And, you know, the the body is highly adaptable. I mean, there are 200 plus weird chemicals in the umbilical cord blood of babies. We know that, but, you know, yet not everyone is expressing certain symptoms. Some are, some aren't, you know, so the kind of uh, non-acute toxicity accumulation theory um, to me is not fully complete. And I, I subscribed to this for many, many years. I attributed everything that I couldn't understand really to, it must be a toxin. 
you know, so when I didn't have a model, when I didn't have this map for understanding cancer, I knew people that were super healthy, ate all the best food, did the saunas, did the detoxes, took the supplements. They were pinnacles of health. And then they'd have a diagnosis. And the explanation among the community was, well, you know, before they lived this healthy way, they lived really, you know, they were exposed to toxic things. They lived in, you know, new homes with lots of toxic materials. And so it was attributed to kind of some unexplainable mystery toxin from who knows when, you know, and that explanation at the time was like, solid. that was like, I will, I'll accept that. But now I don't accept that simply because it doesn't make um, consistent sense. Um, and that if there's a cancer showing up, at least look at what's the tissue level, what's the conflict associated with it, what happened in that person's life, you know, so you don't have to completely say, oh, toxins can never cause anything. Um, but also look here. Also look here. Also look at the psyche of the individual. Look at what they went through and, and actually see what makes more sense. Is this a toxic um, expression? You know, so even, oh, I, I moved into, you know, a moldy house and, you know, this child gets a rash and this person has, you know, all of a sudden has chronic fatigue and someone else has swollen tonsils. And it's like, those are different things. Those are different expressions. And I would be interested in what's the morsel that one can't swallow? What's the separation that that one had? Uh, what's the uh, feeling on the wrong path that this other one had? It's like, I want to know more about the individual. So it's more detail. It's, it takes more steps rather than to say, must be a toxin, must just be my body, you know, expressing some type of seasonal detox. And it's like, well, does everyone have a seasonal detox? Is that something that's actually happening for every person every single season? You know, what? what's the, the clock that determines this? Because I know people that haven't expressed any symptoms in over a decade. And it's like, is their body just not detoxing? And I know people that literally yep. get worried <laughs> that they haven't, you know, expressed symptoms because they have bought into this idea that expressing symptoms means you're detoxing something and that there must be something wrong with you because you're not. And it's like, there, there was there was a period in my life, maybe 10 years or several years where like, you know, things were flowing. A lot of things were good. I had a lot of peace in my life. And like I didn't experience any cold flu symptoms at all. And then you'd read online and someone would be like, well, if you, you're not getting at least one a year, you're not healthy. You know, and I'm like, what are you talking about? It, sound, it seems ridiculous to me. And I, I, I knew we'd talk about this at some point because this is the uh, I guess the issue that I have with a lot of people. And, and generally speaking, in the terrain community where they just want to explain things away like any symptom is because of a cleansing detoxification pattern and another reason why i think gnm ghk is like the most holistic scientific understanding of our biology and what happens that i've ever come across because of this level of specificity it's not this vague oh detox oh you're detoxing oh you're detoxing like it just it's lazy in my opinion when you just throw the detox label on everything i agree i mean i think that it's um, it is. It's a lot easier. It's a lot, you know, but we 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 desire a scapegoat. It's, it's it's nicer to have a scapegoat than it is to have to kind of get to the core of it for a parent to have to realize, you know, what kind of environment is being cultivated around the children. It's causing them to express. It's easier to say, you know, it's the environment. It's the toxins in our, you know, new building materials or the mole. It's something, you know, something like that. That's easier to swallow, you know, and it isn't uh, convenient to have to do this deep digging. Uh, but when you see that this, if if something keeps happening and you've done all the cleaning, you've done all the detoxing and you see, and that that's the thing for me is I just got to the point where I saw people who detox and did all of the clean living things for such a long period of time, but still, but still would have something that, you know, I, I just think if you watch it long enough and if you, if you think that's the solution 
for long enough, you're going to come across, you're going to get to the point where you see the exceptions. You're like, something's not adding up here. And for me, I just have already gotten to that point. Some people haven't, you know, I respect where you are on your journey. If you're still very, you know, into that model. For me also though, is the the GNM and the reason it resonates so much deeper is it brings more freedom, you know, to to know that my body is, a, you know, my body's constantly adapting to all of this weird material in here from God knows where, what factory did all this stuff come from? You know, this plastic, this metal, this you know, this marker, it's like, we're not, all of this stuff is foreign to my ancient natural biology. But that's the thing about the body is it's very good at adapting. And this model gives me just this, like, this confidence, this robustness, this like, yes, my body is always doing the very best it can in every environment. You know, if you throw some toxin at me, my tissues are already adapting to it um, and integrating the reality in which I find myself. And so I like that. That makes me feel really good. And so I base, you know, truth for me is that which sets me free. And so when I, uh, this model is the one that sets me the most free, the toxin model, they're still mm. kind of sketchy. Oh, I got to be afraid of that. Oh, I'm a little cautious about that. And that doesn't mean that I just do whatever, eat whatever, don't care. You know, I still buy the products that make sense to me. I, you know, like to use clean ingredients. I like to buy, you know, but I don't freak out. I don't, yeah. You know, I, I'm not going to willingly expose myself to something that I think is, you know, bad for me or I think is toxic or I still have an idea that, oh, this is going to cause harm to me because I've, I'm, there are so, still certain things that I have a little hang up about. You know, I think I've shared before, I used to have a hang up about um, seed oils and like the bad oils they cook with at restaurants. And every time I'd eat at a restaurant, I'd get a breakout, you know, and I'm still, there are still certain substances and things that I'm like, oh gosh, that is going to cause a problem for me. and. And because I still believe that and it still has that influence over me, sometimes I'll have a little symptom if I get exposed to something or I eat something. Um, or, you know, I, th I think I've also shared about like my dog licking my face. Sometimes I, I have like a limit. It's like I can have a little kiss, but if they're like kissing too much, I, I will still get a pimple because there's still this kind of like, well, it's too much and I'm feeling soiled now, you know? And so this doesn't make it so you never have any adaptations, obviously, like this isn't about being perfect and never, you know, having a conflict. We're, we're still going to have conflicts. It's the whole nature is it's like I was caught off guard, off guard by how slobbery that kiss was. <laughs> and so when it's unexpected, when you still have a reaction to it, but knowing that I can get to the point where I become so, you know, non-resistant, non-reactive to it, if I don't have a conflict, it's not a, it's not a conflict for me. I won't have an adaptation to it. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in my process of like discerning truth over the years, the common thread that I've found amongst, you know, the things that I've found to be most truthful is that it's empowering to the human being, but it's empowering at the cost of responsibility and the laziness does not fit the bill when it comes, you know, to what, to what that is. Yeah. And, you know, and this just screams like my, my whole body is, you know. Well, and that was it from day one when we first met, like, I don't know, three years ago. It just landed for me as truth and responsibility. And we've said this before on this podcast, is that you're not going to be really open to GNM unless you're ready to take radical self-responsibility for your life, you know? And even the whole, like, the, the toxic is the thing that's impacting me. We're still dealing with materialism. You know, we're not, we're not dealing with, like, consciousness is left at the door with so many systems or modalities, or it's paid lip service with, like, vague terms like mind, body, stress, etc. And so the specificity of this from a consciousness standpoint and the fact that all three of us could be in a room together and there could be some event 
And yet your psyche may perceive it differently than my psyche and Joel's psyche may perceive it differently. So we look later down the road, what symptoms presented? You know what I mean? So that's a fascinating thing. But I think maybe if we if we want to kind of start getting into like, okay, biological law number one. I know you commented on it a little bit, um, but let's go through the biological laws and then we'll see, you know, what what kind of goes from there. Totally. And yeah, we can even start with, you know, a fun case I just read this morning is so, so cool and interesting. This person's child um, swallowed a coin. This little three and a half year old is really interested every time um, his mom has change or is like paying for, you know, something and there's change involved. He's like, oh, can I have a, a coin and, you know, put it in his little pocket. And, and so three and a half likes this little coin. And, and then he, you know, mom gives him a coin. A couple of minutes later, he goes, mommy, the coin is in my tummy. And she's like, oh, oh no, the coin is in your top. What, what do you mean? And she's like, it was a big coin. And she's starting to freak out. She's starting to think, is it going to be, is it blocking somewhere? Is this going to get through? You know, and so she starts to panic. And this is a very interesting thing, too, is that we can have a conflict on behalf of someone else. And so she's really worried. She's really freaking out. Is he going to be able to expel this morsel? Is this going to get caught somewhere? And so the way for biology perceive that is with the, the sublingual gland creating more mucus. And so she started hypersalivating. And so it's like, how cool that the body, and this is, this is just the brilliance of this map. And so when something happens, when there's a shock, you know, when, you, when, when your son says, mommy, there's a coin in my tummy, and what your psyche immediately perceives is, oh, no. This, I am not going to, how can this get out? This is going to get stuck off. You know, that is shocking. Caught on the right foot. You know, it was like it, all of a sudden, everything was fine the moment before. This is the nature of the cause. This is the DHS, the Dirk Hammer syndrome, which is the moment that you are shocked, the moment that you are, you know, frozen in fear, stunned by what you just heard, realized, discovered, that is when your psyche, so before this mother even had the chance to kind of like compute what was going on, her psyche already was adapting. Her psyche already perceived the nature of the conflict, the, uh, the problem at hand, and what tissues would be best able to help the situation. You know, and we can, we can feel this vicariously on behalf of a loved one, which is so interesting. And so, you know, she immediately, like her salivary glands, start to proliferate. So this is what happens when we have a conflict shock, depending on the nature, the type of the thing that happens. So the psyche perceives it, the brain, there's an impact. And so for the salivary glands, that's the oldest type of tissue in the body, the endodermal tissue control from the brainstem. So if we scanned her brain, there's an impact in the brainstem and the salivary glands begin to proliferate. So some change is happening in the organ in order to, it's a meaningful, it's a meaningful adaptation to this situation of not being able, what am I going to do about this morsel? Is it going to be able to expel? And so something super interesting is the right side of the mouth and the right side um, of the brain has to do with getting the morsel. Like I want to get the morsel. The left side is about getting rid of the morsel. And this goes all the way back to um, original, very uh, ancient type of organisms, they were just one ring. And the one ring had one opening and the food would come inside. It would go to the right. Um, it would go around and exit through the same hole, but on the left. And so our right side is about taking a morsel in. The left side is about expelling the morsel. So this okay. mother had proliferation of the left salivary sublingual gland so she could produce more 
saliva to help her child to expel this morsel. Yeah. Can you define morsel just for those listening? Yeah. So a morsel, the fundamental morsel, obviously, is some type of food, some type of nourishment, something that I need in order to survive. And it can you know, be a very literal thing. Like I need to get rid of this penny morsel, this bone morsel, this thing that I've ingested that I need to expel. But we can also have it in a transposed sense because we are, you know, we have this higher consciousness. We have this big cerebral cortex. We can kind of personify and we can, you know, money is often a morsel for people. So money, because it represents the nourishment, it represents the thing that I need. And so a home, a car, you know, some, you know, a, a person even could be a morsel too. If you want to, um, one of my teachers, Helmut Pilhar, um, he would describe like a man who wants to snack on a woman. That could even be, you know, potentially a type of morsel. So it is anything that you perceive as needed to survive, something you need to consume, something you need in order to to live in some way. So that's what the morsel, I don't, I know that I'm so used to using the word morsel that it's like sometimes mm. people are like, what the heck is a morsel? And yeah. so it's, yeah. And in, in the context of like expelling the morsel, like, so for example, could a bad relationship be considered a morsel? Could a bad relationship be considered a morsel? Hmm, that, you know, it, it would depend, depend on the individual. Um, yeah. If, I mean, what, what did that, what does that person get from the relationship? It would have to, you know, normally have some type of survival. So yes, if the, if you are in need of this relationship in order to survive, then potentially that could be perceived as a morsel. You know, some things, um, yeah, we have to dig into that person's experience. You know, what is what does this relationship symbolize for them? What does it mean for them? Um, but, you know, if, if the symptom is showing up and often we have to pull the thread to really see what this is about, because there are some things where it's like, no, it's not going to be that type of conflict. It's going to be this type of conflict. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. So, First biological law, psyche-brain-organ connection. Psyche perceives the event. The brain carries the impact. So there's a change. There's a change in our tissue physiology when we have a conflict shock, which is super interesting. Um, and this was explained by Dr. Stefan Lanka that our tissues change. So if in nature, conflicts are very short. <laughs> they are, you know, you are a little rabbit being chased by a fox. And you're going through, you're in the conflict for, you know, maybe three minutes before either you get caught, you get down a hole, you get away, you freeze and they leave you alone. You know, it's not going to be a very long lasting situation. And so when we are adapting, the tissues use oxygen for three minutes. And so we also know this like with a boxing match, it's like there's a certain period of time where you can, you know, when you're operating um, in oxygenated tissue. And then if it goes on for longer, we have to change over to lactic acid fermentation. And so this is like, think about long distance running, you know, and the burning in the legs and all of that. People are aware of, you know, these, these terms and kind of how the physiology of musculature works and how the tissue physiology changes when we are in sustained activity. Now, when we are in sustained conflict, the brain and the organ change their, their tissue makeup. Um, from chondroitin sulfate into um, hyaluronic acid, which is more, can utilize sh uh, sugar. So we're using sugar and people are aware of this. When I'm in conflict, I want more sugar. You know, you need 16 times more sugar in order to basically continue to run this program. And so this is just another interesting thing that changes in the physiology, you know, and also the idea of, you know, you're acidic. Oh, when you're, you just need to drink alkaline water and drinking alkaline water and having an alkaline diet, that's going to, 
you know, be the thing that heals you. It's like, no, if you're in this acidic state, you're in an adaptation. The body is in conflict. The tissues are going through this adaptation. And so you can do the external thing like changing the, the water, changing the food. But if you don't change the conflict, that's one of these core essences we have to get to. Sometimes when you're in the midst of making a lifestyle change, changing your diet, changing your water, being proactive, you do resolve your conflict. And then you say, it was the diet, it was the water, it was the nature, it was this, these changes that I made that caused my disease process to go away. Now I'm totally healthy, but we're not looking at the specifics of the conflict, what was going on, what changed during that time when I was going through this you know, nutritional, taking care of myself, finally uh, transformation. And so, yes, when we're looking at the first biological law, the thing to keep in mind is the cause. And this also brings in the universal law of cause and effect. If there is a symptom in an organ, there is a specific thing that caused that symptom to arise. And we always have to look at the psyche because the psyche is what is perceiving. The, the body is just a responder. It's not an initiator. The initiation comes through the perception of the psyche, of the organism that is experiencing life. And when that thing catches you off guard, is over your threshold for what you can handle, we have to be so grateful for these programs. I know a lot of them, a lot of people get to the point where like, oh, F cancer, F this, F that about, you know, different things. I hate being sick and it sucks to be sick. And I get it. I don't like to have symptoms. It was not fun to have symptoms. You know, however, I'm very grateful for these mm -hmm. programs. Every biological program that exists within the body, every tissue that has this capacity to transform itself temporarily in order for me to survive, it provided some type of benefit to an ancestor that allowed them to live another day, to be able to reproduce, to be able to keep the game of life going. And so we, you know, having regard for these biological programs and the fact that our tissues have this capacity, it's actually really cool and you can honor it. You know, you don't have to enjoy it, you may, you know, but you may find a new level of chill and curiosity as you're going through even an intense healing phase simply because you get it. You get it at some level that it's like, this is what my body needed to do to survive how I experienced that situation. And so um, that is the first biological law, um, the psyche-brain-organ connection, also called the iron rule of cancer, because Hammer found that this always applies in every case to every cancer. And it wasn't actually until afterwards that he realized, oh, this also applies to other diseases. This also applies to a cold sore, to a hemorrhoid, to a pimple, not just cancer. At first, he thought it was just about cancer. But, you know, the more that he understood the tissues, understood the brain, understood the whole um, system, he saw it was every symptom has, you know, every tissue that we're looking at that goes through some type of transformation had an initiating cause, a DHS, a shock. Yeah. You know, you share this information and you talk about the word like chilling, like learning GNM literally has brought so much more peace and built greater capacity within my nervous system. Just having the knowledge, you know, when something happens, when I'm sensing something or there's a symptom and we share I shared in the previous episode with Mark Gober, we we're talking about his book and GNM came up a little bit. I shared my story that, you know, about recently with the whole tooth thing. And like if I didn't have this knowledge, what would have happened? What decisions would I have made? You know, talking about taking out teeth, taking out organs. These are like major decisions that people make in times of crises, not being educated, maybe being living in fear and searching externally for what to do. And so, you know, this is something that I know is said in the GNM community often. It's like, learn this stuff 
while you're healthy. Mm-hmm. Don't wait like, like, oh, I have this symptom or my friend's having this thing and I want to introduce them to G&M. It's like, okay, you can, but it's, this is the stuff that I personally think is, is best to know when you're not dealing with chronic disease, chronic symptoms, um, or something acute as well. Let me, feel free to share your thoughts on that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I often, you know, I'm on the phone with people all the time, you know, helping them to understand their symptoms through the lens of GNM. Um, but often they don't come to it until years into a diagnosis, years into treatment. And, you know, and and it's while this map is very helpful, um, it may create more split energy, more like, oh, you know, I don't know what to do. And I, and I find that that's so difficult. So yes, the earlier we learn this, the earlier we have this in our pocket so that we know when the lump, when the bump, when the blood, when the whatever comes up, you already know where to go so that your first thought isn't, oh, fear, Google, you know, WebMD, what, you know, what are my pre-programmed ideas about this type of symptom? When something swells up, if you have a swollen lymph node, you're like, I know exactly what this is. This was a self-devaluation conflict that I recently resolved. And now my lymph node is rebuilding itself following that event and that this will, you know, be swollen and maybe a little tender for a while while there's still extra fluid in it. But afterwards, the swelling will go down, but the the enlargement is going to remain simply because that's the whole purpose of the biological program, you know, and having that just locked in so that you absolutely know, you know, there may be situations where you you're like, yes, listen, I was in this conflict for months and months and months. And, you know, it was something that was unresolved. We didn't know what was going to happen. And so I know my tissue and I was up at night. I wasn't sleeping very well. I know that my tissues adapted for longer than an ideal amount of time, you know, and let's say that that results in a lump in the breast, you know, depending on where you are with that, you know, what you're going to do is all about what you believe and what makes sense to you. You might say, you know what? I know this conflict was really long and I know that in order to go through the healing phase, it might be really intense. I'm going to have a lumpectomy, you know, but making that decision from that place of, I get that this isn't some scary thing that's going to spread all over my body because I know, you know, what the map says about metastasis, that cancer doesn't just randomly spread, that it's additional conflicts. And so I'm trying to avoid additional conflicts just because, you know, I still have this idea about a lump, I'm just going to do this. But you make that dis- when you make a decision from that sense of peace and understanding and knowing yourself, knowing the map, knowing why it's there, it's completely different. And so, you know, um, there is this place, this wonderful place for modern medicine. And there's so much that it has to offer. And it's not, the system does not completely eschew modern medicine and say, oh, you just, you never do this and you never do that. It uses it very specifically. Um, and, you know, there are doctors from around the world who kind of surreptitiously kind of in the behind the scenes are, are using GNM in, you know, the, the surgical world, in the medical world. Um, but it's so unfortunate. I mean, this is, this will end up being one of the greatest crimes in the history of the world that this knowledge has been suppressed. And this is kind of when you get into the you know, uh, the conspiracy behind suppressing Dr. Hammer and his discoveries, because, you know, that's the thing is this should be being tested. This should be being taught. This should be being explored. Every doctor who's gone through medical school should at least be exposed to this model, even if there's controversy, even if there's like, you know, some doctors are into it, some doctors, you know, it should be on the table. It should be a big discussion. Everybody should know about it, but they don't because- Because why? (laughs) You know, maybe you ask that question. Maybe you find some answers. But um, yeah, that is 
Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but yes. <laughs> I, have a, I have some really relevant quotes from Dr. Harmar. The first one is, engaging in medical diagnostic screening is like a calf visiting the slaughterhouse just to say hi. Just saying hi. That is really, really good. You know, because people do ask me about that. Well, what do you think about this screening or that screening? Should we at least check this out? Should I this? Should I that? And it's like, it's all about what you believe is necessary. Does it bring you more peace to get this information? There are situations where you have a blood test, you have a scan, and the data that that gives you gives you some greater peace of mind, some greater understanding. At least you're like, okay, maybe I didn't know what tissue I was working with before. Now I know. So now I can more specifically get to the core of this conflict. But also, um, knowing that when I go in, they're going to see something and they're going to have their recommendations that they, you know, by their medical code have to tell me, like, I have to tell you this about what this is. And if you don't kind of have a really solid um, inner knowing, that can sway you. I mean, I, I don't like going to the dentist simply because I know I have cavities. Like I've had them for years and they always are, you know, hemming and hawing. There's the, you know, the dental hygienist and the dentist and, you know, and they're, and I don't like the way you feel. I, I think that many of my cavities have been caused by wanting to bite the dentist and, you know, and, and feeling, um, yeah, like I can't do that or I need to do what they want me to do. And so even in that setting, I get kind of uncomfortable. Um, and so I don't go very often. I haven't been for a cleaning in many years. I, I'll go occasionally and just kind of stomach the <laughs> the hemming and hawing and, you know, what the dentist does. But, you know, you have to gauge where am I with this? You know, what am I likely to, you know, I spoke with someone recently who was like, I just, you know, I'm having the scan done because it makes sense for me to do it. But I do kind of want to, you know, go into it with a, a mindset um, of peace, you know, how can I minimize at least my potential of having a conflict shock over what they find? And so we talked about different ways that you can do that, you know, and mostly it's like, how can I see this through? This is just data. This is just data. This is just information. I'm using this for um, my system of understanding, and it's going to give me greater peace of mind. Because if there's something going on and it feels really mysterious, if, if you are having compulsive thoughts about it, you know? And so that's one of the indications. So as we go into the, you know, second biological law and understanding, like, what are some of the symptoms when I'm in a conflict? Compulsive thinking. <laughs> if your mind keeps going back to this problem and keeps going back to this problem and you find yourself throughout the day compulsively thinking about this, what's the solution? What's the solution? If you're waking up, you know, in, you know, it's 3, 4 a.m. with your mind on something, what's the solution? It's like, those are indications that you're in a conflict and that your psyche is searching for a solution. And so if it's about this symptom that hasn't gone away yet, and you're like, you have to gauge. Is getting a test for this, is this going to be helpful? Um, but you also have to know that, and especially for children, this is when I get, I, you know, I'm sure this is extra scary for parents. If your child's got something going on, and you go in and have testing done, that really is the cast at the slaughterhouse, because it's like, you know, the the system might decide that you need to give that child treatment, that you have to um, do some type of protocol. And that was the story of Helmut Pilhar and his daughter, Olivia, you know, where she had, you know, I think it was the story is her mom went to work and she wouldn't eat the food that her grandma fed her. And so she had this starvation um, conflict and her liver swelled up. And so this, um, you know, but they got involved in the medical system and they chased them around Europe and forced her to have chemotherapy. Because they, you know, think, oh, these crazy parents who don't do treatment. So there is risk there. And the more that you're rooted in this knowledge, there's a great book um, called The Baby Book. 
And it's written by parents whose child had a fall and they had to go in and get an x-ray and see if everything was okay and how they, you know, very nearly got kind of sucked into the system and how they navigated it with the GNM lens. And it's a must read for every parent um, because, you know, if something like that happens, you have to be so solid in your knowing your rights and knowing how the biology works and knowing, you know, what you're going in there for. And yeah, it's a lot to navigate. And again, it's so unfortunate. Every doctor should know this. Every doctor, you know, we shouldn't have to navigate uh, in this way, in this medical system, so that we don't get sucked into having some treatment that we don't want or believe that we need. But we do because this hasn't been accepted as the model that we're all working from. Yeah. Who's the author of the baby book? Do you, do you know the, the name? Because if you, you Google it, I think some other book. Yeah, I'll, I don't know what name is actually on there as the author, but I'll share the link so you can put it in the notes. Great, we'll put awesome. it in the show notes. Um, yeah, and that that second quote, I guess, hearkening to the greater conspiracy of the matter, is Dr. Harmer says, "To sell chemotherapy as a therapy is most likely the biggest deceit in the history of medicine. Whoever masterminded this chemo torture deserves a monument in hell." Now a short break from the episode. If you're looking to seek, connect, and surround yourselves with high integrity, high value, truth-seeking individuals, then to me, our membership community, Friends of the Truth, is the best place on the internet for that, absolutely, particularly if you're interested in the topics that we discuss regularly on our podcast. Our Telegram community is so incredibly value. Um, we're exploring a broad number of topics from human design to German new medicine and so much more. And not to mention the regular monthly calls. We meet twice as a community. We share, we get deep, we get vulnerable. And should you want to join our community, you'd be welcomed with absolute open arms. So to learn more, please hit the link in the show notes or head to friendsofthetruth.co. And we'd love to meet you, see you inside and get to know you. Back to the episode. Yeah. Right. He, so, I mean, he, his heart broke for these patients. I mean, he lived and breathed for these patients. He's on the phone with these patients, helping them through all sorts of things. He saw children, you know, get absolutely just like brutalized in the system. And, you know, and, and so that was his experience as he saw that this was absolutely not necessary and not helpful. And um, yeah, I mean, it's very heartbreaking when you read some of his reports of, uh, you know, what he saw happen to people in the system. Yeah. So, I mean, re reading between the lines, I think we can all discern why this information is so heavily uh, suppressed. For sure. But grateful right. to have this conversation. Yep. Oh, I'm so grateful to have this conversation. You know how much I love this this knowledge and sharing it with whoever I can. Um, so, yeah, let's let's move into the, the law of two phases, the second biological law. Yeah, this one's huge. This is so important for people to understand. So, in medicine, they used to think that there were like 500 hot diseases, 500 cold diseases, these, you know, different diseases. But what Dr. Hummer found is there are actually two phases of the same biological program. And so that when we are in our normal day-night rhythm, so if you see like the line and the up, that's during when we're above the line, we're in sympathetic. So during the day, we're in, you know, heightened fight or flight, we're active, you know, we are um, hunting and gathering, we're out doing things. So our, our body is more sympathetic active. Then in the nighttime, you know, around 5 p.m., sun starts going down, the body shifts into heightened parasympathetic. So this is also the nickname, rest and digest, feed and breed. And so this is the normal day-night rhythm. But when the conflict happens, when you're caught off guard, when there's been a shock, the body shifts into, and this is, most people are aware of this, oh, I'm in fight or flight. You know, I'm, I'm having, you know, my bi biology is reacting to what's going on. I'm stressed out. 
But the thing with this to understand is that it's like a specified fight or flight. So we shift into heightened sympathetic dominance. And so our heart rate is higher, you know, our appetite is down. We're just kind of like looking all over for the, you know, for the solution. We're more agitated. Um, and so this is when there is active adaptation taking place, depending on which conflict we had. You know, and so we activate the conflict, the, the psyche perceives we need more tissue cells in the salivary gland so we can better uh, digest, we can better uh, get rid of this morsel. That's what we need right now. So psyche perceives brain impact organ goes through its adaptation during the first half of the healing phase. And so the law of two phases is there's two phases if there's a resolution to the conflict. If there's not a resolution to the conflict, you don't get to that second phase. You're just persistently in conflict. This is called a hanging conflict. Where in a hanging conflict is there hasn't been a resolution. I haven't found the solution to this. My body is still actively adapting. And so when a person is kind of wasting away with a, they're like losing weight, you know, we have to find when did you start losing weight? And what happened in your life at that time? Because, you know, uh, one of the things for a person who's in a long lasting hanging conflict is like you waste away. You know, you can only it's it's expensive to be in conflict. Remember, it needs 16 times more sugar um, in order to be in conflict, in order to sustain this level of activity in the body. You know, you're not resting because you're waking up trying to find a solution. The biology can only do that for so long um, before, you know, it just can't handle it. And so we're in the conflict. And then whenever we find the solution, oh, this is no longer a problem, no longer a concern. The money came through. Everything's going to be okay. You know, you find that that natural resolution or something profoundly shifts in the way you're viewing the situation. I thought this was a problem. I realized it's not. I was putting, you know, all of my power outside of me. And now I realize that the answer isn't going to come from outside of me. The answer comes from inside. And I get that on a profound level. And I go, oh, you breathe the sigh of relief. You know, the stone drops from your soul. You shift from that heightened fight or flight. And then whatever happened during that fight or flight, whatever tissue adaptations, whether it was tissue growth, additional salivary gland, if there was widening of a duct, um, like the bile duct, widened in order to get more bile through because you were in a territorial anger conflict and you needed more energy to fight off this thing you're angry about. So we widen spaces or we grow extra tissue. Another thing that can happen is functional loss. And so if you're playing like the play dead reflex, if you are frozen in fear and your muscles start to play dead. So those are the three things that can happen when you are in the conflict active phase. There's either tissue growth, tissue loss, or functional loss. Those are the three options when you're in this heightened sympathetic phase, the conflict is active, you don't have a solution. And then once you find the solution, things shift. And so whatever tissue adapted during the conflict active phase, it now needs to be set back to normal. And the way that that happens is you have to start thinking anytime you have symptoms. So this little <clears throat> thing I have in my throat, this is those are the little repair workers. My, my tissues are repairing my throat after having, a, I can't swallow this conflict. You know, I can't swallow this, this situation. I can't swallow that this happened. So there was a renovation in my throat about the thing, the situation that I could not swallow. And so the upper two thirds of the esophagus were widened in order to better either spit the thing out or get the thing down. And as soon as I resolved that conflict, the tissue began repairing. So we have to kind of reconstruct and depending on how much tissue was eroded, so think about a home renovation. If you, you know, are if you tear down 
uh, just a little bit of the wallpaper, and you just have to put a little more wallpaper up, that's one level of healing. If you're like ripped into the walls, if you had to really go deep, that's going to take longer to repair. And so that's how you really want to start thinking about your healing phases. Oh, I'm in a healing phase. My tissues are repairing. You know, the lining there, you know, the squamous epithelial tissue was eroded and widened, depending on how wide it got. That's going to tell us how much repair is going to need to take place. And so that's what's happening when you shift into the PCLA phase. So PCLA means post-conflictolysis, conflictolysis uh, A. So this is the first half of the healing phase that um, follows the conflict active phase. So it's a CA phase. So some of this terminology is very helpful. You'll just kind of start picking up the lingo as you go along. So PCLA, first phase of healing, this is where you are swollen. So all healing happens in a fluid environment. Again, think of the construction crew. You know, so we're in this fluid environment. Um, you know, all the tissues are being uh, repaired, which means that we need, you know, fluid uh, and warmth. So this is when you get feverish. This is also when you're tired. This is when you're like, oh, I'm sick. When we say we are, quote, sick, this means the body is undergoing some repair work. There's reconstruction happening at the tissue level of whatever conflict shock I had. Um, and so think about it. I, I, I visualize it just as very helpful for me to think about the little, you know, parts of my body just working to restore me to wholeness. That's what's happening is it's working to restore me to wholeness and it's uncomfortable and there's pressure. You know, this is when you get a headache. You know, the headache is the swelling on the brain level because we have to heal the tissue on the brain and on the organ level. So there's going to be swelling in both places. And you're going to get to a maximum point of swelling. And when you get to that maximum point, this is also like you get to the maximum point of being pregnant. <laughs> and then there's a big squeeze. And the big squeeze is actually, it's a reliving of the conflict. So you see there's like this big, um, you see it points up and comes back down. So this is a surge of sympathetic dominance. So remember, we've been in parasympathetic. We've been in this rest and digest, this restoration of the tissue phase. And then we have a big squeeze. And so the squeeze is necessary to squeeze the edema, squeeze the fluid out of the brain and out of the organ, you know, so that we can get back to our normal rhythm. And so we have this squeeze and this can be a coughing fit in the middle of the night. This can be a sneezing fit. This could be um, a heart attack. This could be a seizure. And so this is going to be some type of big surge. It could be, you know, your heart racing in the middle of the night. You go through this big surge of sympathetic dominance. Um, you know, and again, how intense that surge is depends on how intense the conflict was. And so we need this. This is like the turning point of the program. We have the squeeze and then afterwards we go into the PCLB. So this is after the conflict, the phase B of healing where there's continued. So I'm in like PCLB of this uh, conflict. And so there's just continued scarification and tissue repair that's happening. And then you return to your normal day night rhythm and you're back. Now, the thing is, is that's very simplified because most people run multiple programs and then you can be active with one program and in healing with another program. So that is something that happens. It's also very, very common. Most people are running at least like 10 different programs at any given time. And so, um, and so it's not as simple as that, but we have to understand a simple version so that we can kind of get more into the complex moving parts of, all right, what all conflicts are active with me right now? But that's like the simplified understanding law of two phases. Um, we can have a hanging healing. Uh, well, we talked about the hanging conflict. So that's when the conflict doesn't resolve. A hanging healing is when you get into the healing phase. And so the tissue, you're going through the, the 
restoration and you're swollen, you're symptomatic, but you step on a track or you reactivate the original conflict. So we go back into conflict and then we resolve it and we're back into healing. So if a person has a chronic issue, if they're just expressing, they're like, this symptom never goes away. I always have a headache. I always have a rash. I always have. And it's like, well, a rash is a healing phase. It's like, well, why doesn't it ever go away? Because something is reactivating the conflict. There's a track. And a track is anything that was in your environment when the conflict occurred. And so this is, you know, you might not be consciously aware that this got programmed in, but your subconscious mind. So your subconscious mind is, you know, in the psyche, it's just, it's your body mind. It's the part of you that built you, <laughs> the part of you that is running, you know, beating, going through and like your, your blood is, is flowing through your body and your heart is doing exactly what it needs to your digestive system, all of your warmth, everything in your body is not consciously controlled by you. I mean, can you, can you control the dilation of your pupils? Can you control, you know, the, the amount of insulin that you uh, produce right now? No, a smarter part of you, an ancient part of you does that. That's the part that's running all of this. You know, so it's not about your conscious mind. This is about the body mind. This is the subconscious. This is the part that's keeping the show running. And when you understand that this is always going to be running for your benefit, that's a little kind of preview of the fifth biological law. So this is always running for your benefit. And so the biology can track. If you have a conflict and there is uh, an orange present in the environment, the body can say, okay, uh, this, we need to watch out. Whenever this is in our environment, we could be back in that situation where there is a, a conflict. And so that could cause oranges to be a trap for you. Oranges, orange juice, whatever. Whatever was in your system, around you, whatever made an impact, on your body mind in that moment, it can flag it. And that element now becomes a reminder of the conflict. And so when you encounter it, you step on the track, the body goes back into the conflict active phase, maybe even just for a moment, maybe even just for a brief period of time, but it keeps you in this cycle, which is like, why don't these symptoms ever go away? Is because somewhere unconsciously are reactivating it. You're stepping on a track, the program's reactivated, which is causing the symptoms to go on and on and on and on. And when you can identify, you know, and this is why we really want to find what was the moment? What happened? What, what was the story? How did I feel? How did I feel all alone? And this is a huge thing for understanding and unraveling your conflicts because one of the elements, you remember you have to be um, caught, off, caught off guard, highly acute, dramatic, isolating. And so isolating is that you feel all alone in this moment. No one can help me. It's all on me. I have, you know, and so that's why your biology adapts is because there's no support. And this is why little children who, you know, are off at kindergarten or preschool and they're away from their mothers, you know, kids have conflicts all the time. They're having little things. But when mommy is there to hug me and hold me and tell me everything's okay, those conflicts just resolve. And they're just very, very minor. But if no one's there, no one's there to talk to, no one's there to hold me, no one's there to tell me everything's okay. You know, this is where kids, when they're, in a situation where their parents are divorced or when it's just contentious in the home. I can't talk to her. I can't talk to him. I'm kind of in the middle of this all by myself. I'm all alone in this problem. And so if you can look back at your conflict and figure out how did I feel isolated and how can I get out of that isolation? And that's why, you know, even just talking with friends, people will resolve things in all sorts of interesting manners through, you know, through religion, through, you know, confession, through talk. Like they get something out 
And this is why, you know, we see wonderful, amazing healings happen in all different contexts, but it's all working off of these laws, you know? And so that's the cool thing about understanding the laws. So you can see why something was so effective. You know, there's this nun study that was done on uh, this, you know, collection of nuns and they um, donated their bodies to science. And they wanted to see, they were studying, I think, Alzheimer's and, and memory loss, like dementia. And they wanted to, you know, see about plaques in the brain. And so, you know, these women, they would uh, interview them and see, you know, do you have memory loss? Do you have this? Do you have this or that symptom? And then they'd look at the brains afterwards. And a lot of these women had what they would call, you know, Alzheimer plaques in the brain, but they weren't expressing, you know, memory loss, dementia, you know, the typical things that you would think of a person. If, if we thought that the plaques in the brain were the cause of the problem, you know, uh, all these plaques in the brain, you think these people, you know, these women were having terrible memory problems, but they were part of this very cohesive community, you know, and they had shared beliefs. And even if they had separation conflicts and losses, they were connected to their spirituality, to their, you know, religion, to their community. And so it was very interesting, you know, to see that depending on how you handle things, depending on how you are able to get out of isolation, you still will go through the adaptation. You still may have the scars, you know, the, um, you know, these plaques in the brain are just indications of places you had conflicts, but that if those conflicts were resolved, they won't cause long lasting symptoms that you don't have to have. It's not that the physical thing is causing the disease, but rather the dis-ease, the conflict caused the adaptation in the brain. And if that was resolved, then the symptom goes away. And so this is an, just another confirmation of understanding how important it is to have that connection, to have someone to talk to. So when you're looking, when you're trying to figure out why was I conflicted about this, it's like, how did I feel all alone? How did I feel like I couldn't actually express how I felt to the person that the thing was about, or just do I feel alone in the world? You know, this goes back, you know, it's existential as well. Like, what are my beliefs about existence and why I'm even here? And so that's where, you know, spiritual connection, a lot of people find, um, you know, prayer to be extremely helpful. And, and it is, they've actually studied it. So, you know what? Prayer is very, very effective. When you have a connection to something um, greater than yourself, you tend to fare better. And it's like, okay, so what do I need? You have to know yourself. What do I need? It may not be a religion, but you may need, you know, someone to talk to or an ability to get out of isolation in order to resolve your conflict. Um, and so that's the law of two phases. Great. Amazing. Real quick, real, real quickly, I want to say just because it relates to I think people listening. You brought up the orange before, but like gluten, dairy, other allergies, mold you brought up earlier in the episode. Those would be related to the whole track thing as well, correct? Totally. Yes. Because, you know, not everybody reacts to everything the same. So if you have a heightened reaction to, to mold or to gluten or to whatever, it means that it was in your system at a time you had a conflict. And so you're reacting to it um, in the way that you are because it is tied to a territorial fear or a separation conflict or a can't swallow conflict. So that's why, you know, your, your throat gets sore or you have digestive distress when you come across that Symptoms. So a lot of people, sometimes people will say, well, what causes allergies? Well, we have to, so what's the allergy? What's the symptom that comes when you get exposed to the thing? That's going to be the thing that we need to know in order to figure out, oh, gluten causes an indigestible, you know, is, is linked to an indigestible morsel. That means the gluten was present when the indigestible anger that you couldn't process was uh, experienced by you. Um, would quote unquote autoimmune conditions fall under a hanging conflict? 
So, yeah. So with an autoimmune, again, we have to look at what specifically is this about, you know, because a lot of things are labeled as autoimmune, like yeah. uh, rheumatoid arthritis, for example, is labeled as autoimmune, which means my body is attacking itself. Um, but what's actually happening is it's a it's a chronic uh, reactivation of a conflict. I'm chronically um, in a self-devaluation or, you know, a brutal separation conflict. Something keeps reminding me of it. And so this thing that makes it seem like my tissues are breaking down or like they even, um, you know, like, oh, Hashimoto's like, oh, my body is attacking my thyroid. It's like, no, the body is going through some type of adaptation related to either, you know, feeling powerless, a frontal fear or feeling too slow. And we have to figure out what is the conflict and why would your body, why would it appear as though your body is attacking a part of itself? And that, you know, just logically doesn't make sense that the body attacks itself. You know, that is the idea that there's something wrong with your body, that a mistake is being made rather than a meaningful adaptation to something in your life that you may not even remember. Yeah. Um, a common example that we've brought up in previous episodes, just in relation to, you know, the isolation and the separation nature of, of conflicts is this whole fallacy around, you know, daycare is like a Petri dish. My kids go to daycare and they come back all sniffly, snotty, you know, eczema, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when really it can be explained through separation conflicts, no one's there. I'm away from mummy. No one's watching me. You know, this mummy's the morsel, right? Well, yeah, I mean, they certainly mommy in the breast. And so yeah. if I'm away from mommy, that means I'm not getting the breast. That means I'm getting, you know, formula. So that's how, you know, dairy allergies come to be is like, I'm given this supplement. I'm giving something other than what I'm wanting. So that could be a morsel or very commonly a separation. So with the skin, yeah. closeness, touch. And yeah, this, I'm currently experiencing some uh, feelings about uh, the dairy industry because we have a big cow and we got her as a big cow. We didn't raise her from a little cow. She's just, and she's easy. She's so great. It's so fun. Um, and we've been wanting a buddy for her. And uh, this connection that we have um, was able to get a calf for us. And this baby was a couple of months old, but she was born blind. And so we know if she's born blind, her mother had conflicts, you know, and I, I, I believe it's cataracts. I mean, I don't have a specific uh, diagnosis, but if it's, you know, a cataract um, affecting either the retina or the vitreous body, there was some type of fear from behind that she experienced in the womb on behalf of her mother that caused her to be, you know, almost totally blind. And so there is a huge fear track there. And these calves, I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking. They take them away right away. They, they barely have any time, if not, you know, maybe 24, 48 hours of getting the colostrum and then they're separated. And so this whole daycare thing, absolutely. This is completely unbiological. It's completely unnatural. And these calves, I'm in this Facebook group of, you know, raising bottle calves. And like all the time, the baby has this problem, you know, like they're these, uh, they get pneumonia because they're terrified. They're having terrible territory fear, death, fright conflicts. I mean, they get these fevers, they have all sorts of issues and it's like, this makes perfect sense. And so it, but it makes it so that, you know, farm, you have to rely on pharmaceuticals to, to help, you know, in some way for these babies to get through this, this period of time, um, which is, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking because it's so unnatural. It's so unbiological. You know, like you should, if you consume dairy, I'm, I'm kind of re uh, looking at my relationship to purchasing dairy products. I'm like, I need to call up everywhere I get dairy from and say, do these babies get to stay with their mothers for at least, you know, a, a period of time that is decent? Because otherwise it is just, you know, we want our, our cow <laughs> to produce all the dairy that we have. So, you know, we're in the process of trying to get her pregnant. And so, Life is crazy, and we live very unbiologically, which is why we have so many conflicts. 
I'm, I'm curious with the awareness that Dr. Harmer obviously had, was he vegetarian or, or vegan? Or what, he was vegetarian. He was vegetarian. Vegan. Okay. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. So I'm interesting on that. And then I want to move on because we have definitely some, some more to cover. Um, that a lot of what I've learned in the, the little that I know about GM that like having protein in the healing phase is important. So how does that play out in terms of like animal protein versus non-animal proteins? Or is this too much of a complicated question to get yeah, into? I mean, that it is a bit complicated. And I do think like, you know, my, you know, your relationship to eating meat and processing animals and the whole thing, you know, that that's like a different rabbit hole. Yeah. But um, yeah, during the healing phase of old brain. So as we actually will move into the third biological law, which is... Um, the ontogenetic system um, of understanding how each tissue responds. And so this is one of the things that really just like caught my attention when I dove into GNM for the first time um, is embryology and histology. So these are two of the uh, first quarter, I think, in chiropractic school. We take, you know, all these ology classes and histology and embryology were two of them. Um, and histology is tissue, you know, so we learn about squamous epithelial tissue, uh, cylindrical tissue, um, and how all of these different tissues, you know, what they do, where they function. Because when the two cells come together, the sperm and the egg meet, they go through this process. And actually really interesting uh, when it comes to embryology and the development, they used to believe that like within <laughs> that uh, there was like basically a very, very tiny human in the sperm <laughs> and that it just kind of like grew and got bigger um, during the development process, you know, but it, I think it was Aristotle and a couple other thinkers were like, no, it's like a seed. It's like something that germinates and then um, differentiates and grows into the full organism. It's not like you're a, there's a full human just shrunk down really small in the sperm. And there's actually a picture on the Wikipedia page that I found rather amusing. But the germ. So the germ, these are the germ layers. When the tissues come together, when the cells come together, the sperm and the egg, there's this tissue differentiation that takes place. And so there's tissue proliferation. We're having more cells, more cells, and then they divide into these three layers. Three layers functionally end up being four layers, but the endoderm, so that's the inner, this is the oldest layer, this is controlled from the brainstem. So we see this interesting pattern and correlation um, to these different layers. And now Dr. Hammer, he correlated this with evolution. A lot of people, you know, have differing views about evolution, you know, believing in divine creation versus like this uh, progression uh, taking place over a period of time. I believe infinite intelligence could have done it anyway. It wanted to, you know, I also don't necessarily believe in like, oh, there was a progression. I believe kind of everything exists at once. And so this kind of universal pattern exists. But for the sake of this explanation, I'm going to describe it how Dr. Hammer describes it, because there is some logic and it does make sense. Um, and so your personal views about you know, how we came to be at the level that we are, um, just kind of look at through this lens and through this understanding um, of progression over time. And so if we think about that basic organism, you know, this basic organism just floating in the ocean that just is just a digestive tract, basically. It's taking something in, it's processing it, getting the energy and expelling the waste product. That ancient, the endodermal, this basic tissue of the body is all simply about survival. It's about acquiring the morsel, processing the morsel, removing the morsel. It's also about reproduction. You know, so breathing, digestion, reproduction, that is what the endodermal tissues. So when you see the yellow, the yellow is the endoderm control from the brainstem, all about basic survival. This tissue 
responds in a certain way when there's a conflict. So when we have a survival-based morsel type conflict, there is tissue proliferation. These tissues grow during the conflict active phase. This is the example of the, the mother with the, the penny. You know, so the child, you know, swallows the penny. The sublingual gland on the left side proliferated because in that moment, what did the biology need for survival? More juices, more salivary juices, better able to slide this morsel so it could be removed from the body. So there's tissue growth during the conflict active phase. And then once that conflict is resolved, once the penny comes up the other side successfully, the mother can huh, breathe a sigh of relief because she's no longer concerned that this you know, coin is stuck somewhere along the system. That tissue breaks down and the body uses the fourth biological law, which is the microbes. The microbes are our seasonal workers. They are our microsurgeons. So whatever was built up during the conflict now needs to be broken down during the healing phase. And that's what bacteria do. So if a person, you know, has smelly breath, anytime there's something stinky going on in your body where there's like, that's a funky odor, that indicates that some old brain tissue, either the endoderm, or as we'll get to in a moment, the old mesoderm proliferated extra cells Extra tissue was needed to produce more juices, to make a thickening, to make a layer of protection. And then during the healing phase, it's broken down using bacteria. And so literally anytime there's something funky smell in your, you know, in your breath, in your ear, in your, you know, your bowels, that means that bacteria are breaking down extra tissue that are no longer needed following a conflict. And so this is so helpful, you know, so anytime you've been wondering about some funky odor, it's always an old brain directed biological adaptation where there's a decomposition of tissues that are no longer needed. And this makes a lot of sense. You know, things that are fermenting have a funky odor. Things that are breaking down smell stinky simply because there's a breakdown process going on there. And so, if, so that... If, if, ahead, someone's, if someone's consistently stinky, does that mean they're consistently conflicted? Yeah. So if someone has, you know, a uh, consistent smell, that does indicate that there's some type of track that they're on. But interestingly, so with these old brain um, endodermal tissues, you can only run the program so many times before the tissue melts away. And so again, every, you know, um, one of the phrases Helmut uses is he says, you've got to give feathers. Every time you run the program, if you built up a thousand extra cells in your sublingual gland or in your thyroid gland, and then you resolve that conflict, you're going to break down during the healing phase 1100. So if you build up 1000, you're going to break down 1100. And so you can see it like every biological conflict uh, takes a toll, you know? And so there is a certain, and this is where, you know, when you understand this at a biological level, even when people, you know, die early, sometimes people are like, oh, Dr. Hammer, he didn't live to be 120. That means that GNM isn't right. It's like, no, if you look at the man's life, if you saw what he went through, the conflicts that he had, the timing of his life makes perfect sense. The timing of people's lives, it's just, we can only run these programs a certain number of times before, you know, there's not enough tissue there to function, you know, so sometimes people will ask about, you know, um, you know, taking thyroid hormones or, you know, insulin. It's like, okay, certain conflicts, if you run this program for a really, really long time, you know, either the tissue melts away, you're not able to produce that same amount of juice anymore. So you may need pharmaceutical support or supplemental support in order to 
you know, continue surviving with normal function simply because nature said, you've got, you've got a, you've got a time limit. You've got a certain number of times that you can run this program. You've got a certain number, you know, length of time that you can run this before we just can't sustain it, you know? And so the body adapts to the best of its ability, but there are limits um, to, you know, tissue limits. And we just have to be aware of that as dealing with these biological uh, systems. And so, yeah, so someone's chronically, you know, stinky, chronically bad breath. Um, they're running, you know, a they're probably on a track very frequently surrounding, you know, a morsel or uh, feeling attacked or feeling soiled with the sweat glands. But the sweat glands, for example, will, you know, uh, break down. If you, again, have run the program so many times, you might say, why am I not sweating as much? Well, you may have run the program so many times that your sweat gland is actually, you know, smaller than it was before. So you can't even produce the same amount of sweat because the program has been run multiple times. Mm-hmm. So, for example... Like I know an, an aneurysm is intellectual self-devaluation. So for example, by the time an aneurysm happens, is that extreme tissue loss? Because I'm sure people have lots of intellectual self-devaluation conflicts over the course of their life, but then all of a sudden someone experiences an aneurysm. Yeah. And so, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> I spit your message popped up with your assholes. I'm good to stay longer. Um, and I got distracted. So, um, with the intellectual self-devaluation, so there's thinning. So if there's weakening of a blood vessel that can cause, you know, a little pouch. So that's what they, you know, is an aneurysm. Um, what was the question exactly? So, for example, like this this tissue loss that we're talking about, and we can only run the conflict so many times, like would an aneurysm, for example, be the end result of, I can't run this conflict anymore, you know, then we need to, something extreme needs to take place. Because I'm just thinking like, we all experience intellectual self-devaluation, you know, I'm sure many times throughout our life, but, you know, by the time an aneurysm hits, it seems to be an extreme, obviously obvious symptom. Yeah, yeah. So that's going to be a more intense. And so, you know, when you run an intellectual self-devaluation, depending on the intensity and how you're perceiving it, you know, it could show up as as neck pain. It could show up as, you know, muscular, um, ligamentous, or yes, in the brain, in the blood vessels of the brain. And so, yeah, that's going to be something that's been running for a very long time to a certain degree of intensity. Gotcha. Okay. Um, mesoderm, did you? Yeah. So, yep. So we got endoderm. And then the next layer, the middle layer is the mesoderm. And the mesoderm is split into two. So we've got old mesoderm and new mesoderm. So the old mesoderm is controlled from the cerebellum. So remember, we had the brainstem and the endoderm. And then we have the cerebellum and the old mesoderm. And so these tissues are all about integrity and protection. So the description Dr. Hammer gives us, you know, we've got the basic organism um, that just has these lice functions, you know, a little tiny little organism in the ocean that's just concerned about eating and reproducing itself, isn't concerned about protecting itself. It's not concerned about, you know, relationships. It's just, you know, very basic existence. And then um, the way Dr. Homer describes it is so when life moves from the water to the land, you know, in striving for, you know, more experience, we move on to the the land. Um, There is a need for protection, protection against the earth, protection against the, you know, the radiation from the sun. And so that's when uh, this this layer developed, the old mesodermal layer of protection. And so this is the deeper layer of skin. It's the corium skin. It's the protective coatings around our organs. Um, the pleura, the pericardium. And so these offer protection. And during the conflict of feeling attacked or feeling defiled or soiled or dirtied in some way, this layer will thicken. Makes sense. You know, if I'm feeling attacked against my chest, my pleura is going to 
thicken as a protection. If I'm feeling attacked against, you know, my integrity, um, I might get a melanoma, you know, and so that causes this barrier, this, um, yeah, this barrier to be built between me. It gives me thicker skin against the attack. And then once that's resolved, the body uses bacteria, just like with the endoderm, to break it down. So there's a buildup of tissue during the conflict, and then there's a breakdown. And so all of this, and it may seem tedious, like endoderm, mesoderm, these old brain, but you know, it's, it may seem like a lot, but it's pretty simple when you understand that there's four different tissue types that behave in two different ways, basically. And so when you have a symptom, if you have a melanoma, if you have an acne, if you have, you know, excessive sweating, okay, so we're working with the, uh, you know, we have to know the tissue level. We know the um, type that we're working with. We know what the symptom means. Oh, I'm in the conflict. The tissue is building up. Oh, I'm in the resolution. The tissue is breaking down. That's what the odor is. That's what the swelling is. And so you see how the understanding brings peace rather than confusion and fear. If a symptom comes up and you don't know why it's happening, if you're like, why do I have this terrible acne breakout? Oh, this is so awful. But then you remember that you spent, you know, four hours yesterday on Instagram, you know, looking in the mirror and looking at, you know, people who you think are prettier than you and feeling ugly and, you know, having this event coming up and you're like, oh, okay, well, this makes a lot of sense. It's unfortunate. I don't like to have acne, but I can see that I was really beating up on myself. I was feeling really ugly. And then my, you know, my sister said that thing to me and I felt really attacked by that. And you can see the direct correlation between, you know, what happened and why this breakout is present. You're like, I get it. You know, oh, there's a big pimple right on my back right shoulder because someone was talking about me behind my back and I found out about it. You know, and so when you see it, when you get it, when you understand it, you don't have to panic or worry. So that's the power of learning these words, of learning what the tissues do when they're in conflict. But that is, you know, pretty simple. The yellow group and the old orange group grow extra tissue during the conflict active phase. And then during the healing phase, they break down with bacteria and they might smell funky and you should eat more protein during that time. Yeah. Pretty simple, right? Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> and it's... The, the whole acne example is quite like self-reciprocal as well. Like someone, you know, may feel ugly. They develop acne and they're seeing themselves with acne and they're constantly like, I, I am ugly. I look ugly. I feel ugly because there's acne present. Oh, acne is the, the such a vicious cycle. Like there's a lot of conflicts that you just get into this vicious cycle because, you know, you judge the result of having judged yourself, of having felt ugly. And then you feel even more ugly. I was in that loop for such a lot. I would feel... Oh, cursed by God when I was a teenager and in my 20s and I get a zit and then I'd be so disappointed and I would get a zit like right next to the other zit because I'm like, and then I'd be like, this is just so unfair. And I'd see people that have no acne and I, you know, feel even worse about myself. And so seeing this, it gave me so much just like precious understanding for myself and my experience. And, you know, it's like, I get it. I, I get it. I understand how to keep clear skin. And when, a pop, when something pops up, I know why it happened. And it's just like, now it's just super interesting to me if I have a, <laughs> a huge zit somewhere and it's like, well, I get it. You know, I know exactly why this happened. So yeah, that's a tough one. It makes sense as this being very prevalent, like especially during puberty as well, you know, as we're moving out, extending into the world, we're comparing and contrasting ourselves. We're seeing ourselves. We're becoming more conscious of who we are, how we present. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That That's what Hammer says. It's like, you know, when you're interested in the opposite um, sex or how you, you know, appear and what do people think about me, you start thinking about that around puberty. And he says, go out to the woods, go out to the woods, away from people, away from everything. 
no mirrors. You know, mirrors are a big one. Um, if you've got a if you, you've got a symptom that you see on a regular basis, every time you look at a mirror, stop looking in the mirror because that's a track for you. The mirror, every time you look in the mirror, it's a track for you. Every time you like see yourself. And so getting away from mirrors for, you know, a period of time is going to be very beneficial to break that loop. And that's the, you know, having, not being so, you know, people used to not be so obsessed with themselves <laughs> when mirrors didn't exist, you know, when we couldn't even see ourselves, kind of just think about that. Like that's one of those perspective frame of mind things that can really kind of trip you out and get you thinking in a more biological way. Because it's kind of unbiological to know what you look like and be, you know, acutely aware of what millions and millions of other people look like and being able to compare yourself. This was just not a, something that our ancestors had to deal with, which is why they probably had, you know, very beautiful skin and rarely had acne. Um, and, you know, but. Until, no Narciss Until Narcissus saw his own reflection in that river. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, too, because I think it can maybe work both ways. And even if you think about a scale, like a scale could be a reminder, but then also a scale could be something like, oh, it's I, I, I went down more or I'm, I feel better about myself. So it's interesting to see, again, each individual psyche and how they perceive something. OK, well, ectoderm. Yeah, ectoderm. OK, so we're well, actually we still have to finish the mesoderm. Oh, yeah, so new mesoderm. The old is done. Now we're moving into the new. So the next phase um, so again, thinking about the organism, um, we have this, uh, now we need this structure. So this upright structure, our connective tissues are controlled from the new mesoderm. So this is what builds the, the uh, bones, the muscles, the joints, the ligaments, the, the cartilage is built from new mesodermal tissue that's controlled from the cerebral medulla. And now this theme is all about value. This theme is all about, um, you know, my structure. And so when I devalue myself, that's the theme of this conflict. You know, we have the theme of survival, the theme of integrity and protection. Now we have the theme of value and structure. And when I devalue myself, this is where it changes. So before we were growing extra tissue, proliferating. Now for the new mesoderm, there's loss of tissue. So when I devalue myself, when I'm feeling I'm not good enough, I'm not athletic enough, I'm not, you know, um, strong enough the connective tissues erode. There's necrosis of those tissues. It's like the tissues undergo this renovation. We've got loss of tissue um, during the active conflict. We, we lose calcium in the bones. The bones are getting weaker during this time. It's almost like they're, they're melting down. And then during the healing phase, they become stronger. And so this is, you know, everyone's heard when you break a bone, it becomes the strongest bone in your body. That's what's going on here. When you break down this tissue, if you're able to resolve the self-devaluation, that tissue becomes stronger and more robust and better capable. And again, just think about this from a biological perspective. If I'm feeling worthless, if I'm feeling valueless to my pack, to my tribe, you know, you're, you, you get weaker, you know, as long as that is still true for you, you know, so your bones are breaking down during that phase, you, you know, become more fragile until you resolve the conflict. And then those tissues will rebuild, become stronger than they were before. And so they're, you know, the, the tissues come together and they strengthen. And so, like I mentioned before, with the lymph node, the lymph node gets bigger, the bone gets more robust. And so this is all about becoming stronger, but you have to resolve the conflict for this one. And this, Dr. Hummer also called this particular group, the luxury group, because the other biological programs, the biological purpose is served during the conflict. So the biological purpose of the, you know, the endoderm is to grow extra tissue to produce more juices. So the morsel can be better utilized. Um, so we're, uh, 
the conflict is happening and the biological purpose is happening right now. Same thing with the um, old mesoderm. We're building up that extra tissue right now because we need this protection. That's the whole purpose. But with the luxury group, with the new mesoderm from the cerebral medulla, there's a breakdown of tissue during the active phase. And then once that's resolved, the tissue becomes stronger. So you have to resolve the conflict in order for the tissue to go through that growth and rebuilding phase. You know, And so this is where we have bone pain. This is musculoskeletal pains and aches. Um, yeah, so anything that you have going on with your tissues, your joints, um, arthritis, that indicates you've run this program of self-devaluation again and again and again. And the area that you run it, you know, has meaning. So we mentioned before intellectual. So the head is intellectual. The neck has to do with injustice. So feeling like I have to bow my head to someone. Um, the shoulder has to do with your, your relationships. Your dominant side is about your, you know, your romantic relationships or anybody who isn't your mother or child. Your non-dominant side is your mother child side. You know, the, the hands have to do with like the work of my hands. What can I get a grasp, a grasp on, a handle on? How am I devaluing my performance? My, you know, the things I do with my hands, physical, athletics, things. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not fast enough. You know, and so this is very interesting how it plays into injury. So if a person has an injury and let's say they're a big athlete and their whole identity and self-esteem and self-value comes from how they perform athletically, they have an injury and then they can't play anymore. And then they get into this loop of self-devaluation because I can't play and oh, my bad knee. And am I ever going to be the same again? And they go through. And so it may have begun as an injury, but now they're experiencing this ongoing self-devaluation because of that. And yeah. so those very frequently will go together. I love that I get to bring up basketball and German new medicine conversation. We did this twice this month previously with Alec, but we've spoken about LeBron James before, who such a long career, 21 years, 39 years old, rarely injured. Like his self-devaluation conflicts must be absolutely minimal. You know, he must have such a strong consciousness in terms of I am healthy. I've got this. Really? It's interesting to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Ross was, uh, the, the, there was an athlete you told me about who had something and there were a, a, an issue with a bunch of different children with multiple women. Oh, oh yeah. There's a there's a Miami Dolphins player that I love. He's a cornerback who has who had like like four kids with four different baby mamas. Um, and like there was all this drama around it as well. And he had groin issues. I all right. Was, I think that was the one I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, 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 he was that, chronically injured with his. Yeah. I sent you a link to an article. He's chronically issued with groin with groin issues. He actually just hurt his foot like two weeks ago. But anyways, it's been like two year process of dealing with groin injuries. Okay, and so this that's super interesting. So if you've got like a lot of baby mamas and got it, you know, everybody wants some money from you, or like maybe you're regretting certain choices, sexual self devaluation causing you know adaptation thinning of that area. If you're having you know strains, if you you know like a inguinal hernia, for example, we can have you know this. Uh, sexual self-devaluation causing causing weakness to that tissue. And so we're more prone to injuries. And that's another kind of chicken or the egg thing too, is mm -hmm. that if you devaluing yourself, that tissue is becoming weaker, which makes you more prone to having the injury, which, you know, so that injury then kind of feeds into, that's another one of those vicious cycles. I can't do that. Every time I walk, I'm reminded of how I used to walk and how I can't walk anymore. And so we have to kind of go to a higher plane of understanding 
when it comes to these chronic physical symptoms, because often your unconscious, just kind of normal natural reaction to having this symptom that's so inconvenient and uncomfortable and preventing you from, you know, living your potential, doing all the things you want to do and all the meanings and everything that you're doing to your, you know, your identity, your self-image, how you think and feel about yourself. It's like, oh, we have to look at all of this with new eyes. Because when mm -hmm. we look at all of this with new eyes and through the lens of understanding, even going back, you know, so something I've explored, I don't know if I've talked about it on um, our shows we've done together, um, been exploring recently is recall healing, uh, which is based on the five biological laws, but takes more into account the relationship of the parents and the ancestry, the family, even down to like what your name is, the moment of your conception. And so they, uh, in that model, there's a description of something called your project purpose. And so your project purpose is kind of like the, the reason you were brought into the world. And so you look at the nine months before you were conceived, your actual conception itself, the nine months of your gestation in your first year of life. And so everything that happened during that span of time is programmed into your project purpose. Like, why am I here? And so it's very interesting to look at certain, you know, there are some people that I'll talk to and they're just like, yeah, I just feel really bad about myself. And like, they, they can't even identify. They're like, I've just always had this, just, you know, this devaluation or this sense of, I don't belong here, or I'm, you know, there's something wrong with me. And when we go in and we look at, well, what was going on with your parents when you were conceived? Oh, they had no idea that I, you know, it was an accident, you know, I, or I, you know, my mom found out when she was five months pregnant, it was really shocking. And, you know, and they, you know, they uh, questioned having an abortion. There was all this mixed energy, all these like split feelings about, it. and it's like, listen, that, that programmed into you, this uncertainty about your existence, you know, should I even exist? Why would you have that kind of looming feeling your whole life? Well, that got programmed in when you were very, you know, when you were in utero, someone wondered if you should exist. And so by acknowledging, you know, we get out of isolation, we talk about it, you know, this can help you to put that to bed, to see how this story, how this is playing out in your life. They also look at these um, bio-memorized cycles. So you look at your life. Um, so let's say you have a symptom that shows up when you're 20. Um, and you're like, oh, I can't find the conflict because that's a big thing, too. So once people kind of, you know, they buy in to GNM and they're understanding it and they're getting it, they're like, I can't for the life of me figure out what my conflict is. You know, they have ways of kind of looking at like, let's look at what was going on when you were half that age. What happened when you were 10? You know, if you're having trouble finding the conflict at 20, what happened when you were 10? Because you could be in a cycle. You know, and so there's a lot of really cool ways to get into, you know, what caused this? When did this begin? When did this happen? Why do I have this looming feeling of I don't even belong to exist? I've got this kind of existential self-devaluation. And by seeing and making these connections, you know, that could be the resolution that brings you out of this fog of like, do I even, you know, kind of going to, of course, you know, I, I deserve to exist. Kind of this affirmation of a life of, you know, I came here, even though some people, you know, may not have wanted me to be here or had mixed energy about me being here. You kind of going through um, a way of processing that for yourself consciously can kind of cause that stone to drop from your soul, which I just, you know, it's a very, very cool thing to start to integrate. Yeah, it's it's like the texture of the overarching hero's journey that each soul is going to go on, you know, and and the boon, the gifts, the riches, the wisdom that they're here to reclaim and then empower others with. Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. And so seeing, seeing the purposefulness and coming in to, a, you know, some mixed energies and what that, you know, what you learned in that darkness, you know, so we, when you, you know, turn on the light, you're able to 
share that light with other people and kind of be this beacon of what's possible, you know? And so seeing the beauty in that entire journey um, is is a huge part of it. So I, I love, you know, that's the thing is this all, everything integrates with everything, <laughs> every, every tool, every story, every pattern, it can be utilized, whatever it is that you do. Um, I just encourage everyone this using this as the basis of it, using the the biological laws and understanding because these are inescapable laws. You're you're working with them whether you realize it or not. Is the thing is like if, if your modality of what you're using, what tools you're using to help people, it's helping people, you know, on a physiological level through this map. And so knowing the map is only going to help you be more effective, more helpful in whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and so the last one of the four is the ectoderm. And so the ectoderm, this is the most recently developed area. This is the cerebral cortex controlled. And so, you know, so we had very basic function. We had protection. We had structure. Now we have complex social interactions. Now we have hierarchy. Now I have, you know, the need to be connected. Now I have communication. And so that's what the cerebral cortex is all about. It's about connection, communication, sexuality, territory, hierarchy. And so this is the most complex. This is where, you know, one of our previous episodes, we got into the realm of constellations. Um, you know, there can be constellations in the endoderm, in the old mesoderm, in the new mesoderm, in those older brain tissues. Um, but the ones that are most um the ones that we're most aware of as far as like the schizophrenic constellations, those come from the cerebral cortex. So that's the, you know, that's the mania and depression and the autism, the nympho, the Casanova and all of those things that we've talked about. Those are all of the cerebral cortex. And so the ectodermal tissues, this is the squamous epithelium. This is now the outer. So we went from the inner, you know, the, the very inner uh, digestion and the um, the colon, and we moved out. We had the protective layer, we have the bones, and now we have the outer skin. And so that's what the ectodermal skin, so your external skin, the linings of your ducts, so like the lining of your mouth, the lining of the vagina, the lining of your, your ducts, all of this is squamous epithelium, and it has to do with this theme um, of communication, connection, separation. I want to separate from this. I want to get closeness, you know, so babies with rations, fabulous example. I need to be close to my mother. I want to embrace my mother and she is not here. There's erosion. So just like with the new mesoderm where there's loss of tissue during the active conflict, same thing happens for the ectoderm, but the biological purpose is served during the tissue loss. And so when I'm losing tissue, when I'm eroding, having micro ulcerations in the skin, there's numbing, you know, so I'm numbing the pain of this separation. This also causes memory loss because I don't want to forget the person that I'm separated from, you know, so in the cervix, it's a, it's a sexual frustration conflict, a sexual, like I, 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 who is my sexual partner going to be? Who's the father of my children? Causes erosion, widening of the cervix during the active conflict. And so this is where we're losing tissue during the active conflict. And then during the healing phase, that tissue is restored. And so the tissue restoration for the skin, we have an itchy rash. There's oh swelling and it's tender. And, and this is when the tissue is rebuilding from the inside out. Remember, it's a construction. Anytime there's redness, anytime there's inflammation, anytime there's itching. And those are just great things to know. Oh, there's swelling, there's inflammation, there's itching, there's healing happening. There's reconstruction happening. And this, when you understand when, what the symptom is and what it's telling you about what happened, there's peace. At least more peace, because sometimes, you know, sometimes a symptom will happen and you still are kind of maybe a little freaked out because it's uncomfortable, because maybe you haven't 
run that program uh, with this understanding yet, it can still be, you know, you might not be totally uh, unbothered, you know, and the mind loves to have something to worry about. So it's it's understandable if you're still getting a little freaked out about your symptoms, it's fine. Let that be okay. As you become more and more solid in the knowledge, in the truth, in the truth that sets you free, you will find more and more peace through understanding the third biological law. Yeah. If, if, if you can't accept, can you accept that you can't accept? Precisely. Yeah, I'm loving this conversation. Um, listen, you've been amazing. I love this. I know we got a little bit more to get into with the five biological laws. So the next one I think is a really important one because it relates to so much that's happening in the world, so much around all the conversations we're having around the last few years and what's going on. And and that is the law of microbes, biological law number four. Number four. This is So I have a little thing with C's. I do cause is the first biological law. Then we've got the course. It's the law of two phases, the categories. So that's the the four tissue types. And now the critters, these are the microbes. And so the, the microbes are our helpers. And each microbe, each tissue layer has certain workers that work within that layer. You know, so the oldest tissue, so the endoderm has the tubercular bacteria, which is like one of the most ancient bacteria that's kind of like a fungus, kind of like a bacteria. Um, it's a mycobacteria. And so it has a very specific function in assisting these old brain directed programs to decompose. You know, so certain bacteria um, and microbes and fungus live in every layer of these tissues and they are dormant most of the time. Like they're there. This is one of the interesting things. They know that there's something called latent TB, latent tuberculosis or latent uh, strep. So you have strep bacteria in your throat or you have tubercular bacteria in your lungs and it's just there and it's not doing anything and you're not exhibiting any symptoms. You don't have a quote infection. And so every time we have to, you know, change our language, anytime you think of an infection, you know, we have this idea of infection, this something bad got from outside to inside and now it's wreaking havoc. It's doing something bad to me. That's not what's happening. What's happening is you had a conflict, you were in, you had a DHS, you were in the conflict active phase, and then you resolve the conflict and now your seasonal workers are activated. And so this works off of messages from the brain. The brain communicates with every part of the body. The physiology of that area changes. And so the bacteria become active to do whatever their job is, to decompose extra tissue in the new mesoderm. They actually help to rebuild, you know, so uh, bacteria in the bones helps to rebuild bones after they've been eroded. And so these bacteria are amazing and so super capable. And there's so many different types of them. And they're all specialized to assist the tissues in restoring homeostasis. We're just, we're trying to get back to our normal day-night rhythm. We're trying to get back to a, this homeo uh, uh, dynamic, some people will like to say, because we're always adapting. It's a dynamic system. It's not necessarily always the same, but the body is always trying to get back to that balanced state. And so that's what the bacteria help us to do. And so in the in the ectoderm, you know, there are not bacteria in the ectoderm. This is where Homer said viruses if they exist. And so the way that I look at whatever's going on in the ectoderm, you know, so there are, you know, if someone has a, a pap smear and they or they, you know, test that area and they say, oh, you've tested positive for HPV, the human papilloma virus, which they say makes you more prone to having cervical cancer. So we need an HPV vaccine. 
So the thing is, is whatever's happening at the cervix that allows whatever testing, you know, we know all the PCR, all the, you know, viral testing, it's all baloney, it's all smoke and mirrors, but whatever it is, you know, the way that I, you know, because with the descriptions of, you know, no viruses actually exist, that's, that's true. We have, we do not have an isolated virus that exists, but what we do have are tissue changes happening at a location, you know, and so what I consider what most people refer to as viruses is just evidence of adaptation. If you run the program of the cervix and you've had this sexual frustration conflict, there's been erosion of tissue and rebuilding of tissue. And during that erosion and rebuilding process, certain proteins, certain certain proteins are at that present at that site that would not be there if you never ran the program. You know what I mean? So if you never ran this program before, you wouldn't have certain proteins there. And this is simply a byproduct, a process of tissue breakdown, tissue restoration. And so Anytime you hear the word virus, virus, all it means is there's evidence of adaptation, evidence of either, you know, a respiratory, so a territorial uh, a fear conflict. I had a territorial fear conflict. I had a sexual frustration conflict. I had, you know, some type of conflict. There's some type of tissue adaptation. And so the red group uh, is in, in the ectoderm, the microbes that Dr. Hammer said that there are no you know, bacteria in that layer. It's just this quote virus. But for me, again, it's not, it's just like protein changes at a location due to an adaptation. And so that's yeah. the fourth biological law. And from a genome standpoint, um, the view on transmission is not something that's under the umbrella of the knowledge in that sense, like trans transmitting uh, quote unquote viruses or like I, whatever this, you know, like you're not transmitting adaptation in that sense, at least from a microscopic particle standpoint. Yeah, not from a, oh, I can I can put a little bit of this, this virus on you and you're going to get sick. They've never proven that you can actually do that. People sleep with people who have herpes, but they don't develop herpes. How is that even possible if it's about particle transmission? Because it's not about particle transmission. It's about experience. And so we can, we can transmit experiences. If I have a sexual separation conflict, you know, and I, you know, express on occasion the uh, symptom called herpes, you know, I can be resistant to sexual contact. I can, you know, be weird about it. I can make you weird about it. If we talk, you know, we can, I can create this this experience um, and we can come together and then you have a, also have a sexual separation. So we can create that dynamic together um, where we come into harmony with one another. And that's where, you know, the idea of contagion, the experience where people, we had this um, conversation in my class this week about, you know, about just the idea of contagion and people catching things from other people you know, there is vibration, <laughs> there is, you know, harmonizing, there is a dominant, you know, someone who has a dominant vibration in an interaction and someone who has a more passive, receptive vibration. And so that's, you know, I think that when it comes to, you know, why a person expresses a certain set of symptoms, they get around someone and then they express that same set of symptoms. And it's like, okay, well, what was the, ex what was the, subconscious body-mind experience of this interaction. You know, not about words, not about particle transfer. What was the, what was the deep felt sensation of coming into contact with someone who's expressing a certain symptom? Did I also have a, I can't swallow this territorial fear conflict just by coming into contact with you, just because we live in a culture where our subconscious programming is that of contagion. So there's a deeper belief you know, depending on unless you've been raised with this since zero, you know, there is a subconscious belief that you have in the idea of contagion. And so because that belief is present, there is 
a fear of other people being sick around you or expressing a certain symptom or believing that you can get it, even if you never had the conscious thought. A lot of people around, you know, the scandemic time, they're like, well, I wasn't afraid of it, but I did get symptoms. And it's like, you don't have to have a conscious thought that says, I'm afraid of this person. It's subterranean. (laughs) It's subliminal. It's underneath the surface. It's kind of programmed in from age zero, from, you know, the time that They said, oh, well, make sure you wash your hands to not spread germs or not spread disease. That's been being programmed into you that you can get other people sick by not washing your hands. And so, um, yeah, when it comes to the idea that you can spread it through particles, that's a materialist thing. (laughs) This is we have to look at how did it affect the psyche? And so if you believe in particles spreading, that's what's affecting your psyche. And that's the thing that's causing your adaptation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I brought up this example last episode with Mark Gobar, and it seems to be one of the most contentious examples when it comes to the the virus argument is chickenpox, you know, because chickenpox parties seem to be effective throughout history. Why is it this a very certain symptom that's predominantly prevalent in children? We experience separation conflicts consistently through adulthood, yet it doesn't return. Um, So just wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, so that, you know, so any kind of, external skin erosion eruption is a separation conflict. And so, you know, wanting to separate or feeling separated, you know, it tends to happen around a certain milestone of feeling separated from the mother or being at school. And, you know, it's like, I've resolved the fact that I'm going to be away from my mother. And so when the conflict of separation resolves and you've generalized, you know, so when something shows up all over the body, it's a generalized separation and so if the, the chicken pox pop up on a child and then another child gets around them, you know, what was, again, that dominant experience of separation? Did this child, you know, do they want to separate from the child that they're trying to catch chicken pox from? Um, is, you know, what other separation conflicts could that child have experienced? And I find that you really do have to look at the kind of individual dynamics because it's kind of hard to say, you know, did every child, so let's say there's a chicken pox party and we bring a bunch of kids together and one kid has it and, you know, does every single child get it? Do they all get it to the same degree? You know, who expressed symptoms, who didn't and and what happened on the individual level? And so that's why it's really hard to to make generalizations about something that's unique to an individual's psyche and how they perceive this chicken pox uh, party or, you know, this kid who's, you know, he's itching and he's got, you know, something on his skin what was his subconscious programming? And again, what subconscious beliefs does he not even, again, the children, it's not about conscious beliefs. This is all about subconscious biological programming. This is all about, you know, how your body responds based upon all of the things that you've been exposed to in your entire life. And so if your parents have strong beliefs that you're going to catch the chicken pox, you know, um, after going to this experience, uh, you know, with seeing another kid with chicken pox, you know, you already have that expectation. You already have this expectation of this, you know, of this conflict pattern is going to, you're going to experience it. And so this is, I think, somewhere where there's a lot of really cool um, potential for studies, for, you know, experimentation, for seeing more about the unseen causes of uh, contagion, of how I resonate with you and we have mirror neurons and we, you know, go through this kind of, um, co-regulation together of our experiences and how that may play into, you know, me resolving a conflict I didn't even know I had, you know, or templates. And so let's say this child um, had a conflict. They had a separation conflict from their mother and they are now expressing the symptom of uh, chicken pox. And so now what if they have some type of healing template? 
you know, so they have this template for resolving a conflict. And so another child, maybe they also have had this separation conflict, They, but they come into harmony with the child who's resolved it, the one who's already expressing symptoms, and they kind of pick up that healing blueprint for, oh, this is how you resolve a separation conflict. You see how like, because the symptom comes after the resolution, that means one child's resolved it. And these other children, you know, haven't resolved a separation conflict and they get around this child and they receive, in a sense, the healing blueprint for a separation. And so they resolve something they didn't even know was active within them. Yeah, this is really fascinating when you think of it from a nature standpoint, because I remember reading two books that had a huge impact on me, uh, The Secret Life of Plants and The Hidden Life of Trees. And it talks about how plants communicate to one another through sending out signals or resonance. And like, you know, why wouldn't that be potentially be similar in certain situations with with human beings as well. So yeah, again, so many areas to consider where funding can be put towards uh, instead of in the conventional paradigm to continue to explore this stuff. Okay, we've used up so much of your time. We're so grateful for you. And I think this is might be the simplest one, the fifth biological law. This one's woven into everything. This is nothing in nature is meaningless. That the life force. So this is this, this beautiful, vital life force that's all about life. It's all about life and continuing life and expanding life and making new life. This life principle that runs through every organism doesn't make mistakes. It doesn't make any meaningless, arbitrary mess ups. It knows exactly what to do. And it's always geared towards more life. There's nothing malignant. There's nothing diseased. There's nothing evil. You know, and this kind of gets into a bigger picture, even existential. Is it evil when the fox catches the rabbit? You know, is that evil? No, it's just, it's nature. It's life. You know, there's a biological big picture understanding for why everything happens. Is, um, you know, oh, a white blood cell, it's fighting off the disease cells. And it's like, well, is it really? Does the garbage man fight your garbage? You know, or does it simply clear it away? You know, is there an evil, bad uh, malicious something that gets into my body and causes um, sickness that I have to fight off? No, there's not. There's simply, you know, um, my body adapting and bacteria turning on during a healing phase, you know? So it, it gets the evil, mysterious um, entity idea that there's something evil and bad in my body and malignant and my body has turned on me and this autoimmune, it gets rid of all of that. It says, Nature only does what's practical. Nature only does what makes sense to continue survival. Everything is an adaptation. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing evil inside of you that you need to expel or expunge. It's simply you went through life circumstances. Your tissues adapted in a certain way. When you resolve those conflicts, your tissues will restore to their normal balance as best as they can, given how many times you've run the program. It's simple. It's understandable. It brings peace. It kind of brings everything together. Um, that we're in this beautiful infinite intelligence has built all of this. And it's it's done it in a way that allows life to continue. And I, I just think that it's so beautiful and it just brings this peace. And it's like, okay, even if I don't understand all the details of the five biological laws yet, if I'm not, if I don't understand the third biological law and I'm not, I don't know. I do know that whatever symptom is happening in my body right now, this is meaningful. This is purposeful. My body did this for a reason. That reason makes sense. On some level, you know, especially in an ancient perspective, you know, may not make sense in my modern context, but it makes sense given my organismic history, kind of how I got here. You know, I didn't just show up here. Every tissue has a function and a purpose for continuing this game of life. And so I recognize that and I'm going to learn, you know, and so this is where starting where you are, 
And if you can, you know, get into the fifth biological law and the the meaningfulness of everything that happens, you know, all the other stuff is details. If you can just go there and like hold your confidence there and just know that, you know, yes, there was a conflict. This is what it was. You know, you may not need to understand all the mesoderm, ectoderm. If you can just get to that place of chill and understanding and uh, my body's doing this for a reason and hold on to that knowledge, you'll be good, you know, yeah. but it's it's fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the body um, initiator of adaptation. If I'm afraid for my life, if I'm afraid of my own body, I mean, that's what I call, you know, biological terrorism is when, when we are, we have been taught to be afraid of our own bodies, which is what the scandemic all, all the whole of it was is you're not your body. Your own body isn't safe. You can't kiss your mother. You can't kiss your daughter. You can't hug your grandma. You can't go, you know, around other people by, you know, because you are a biological weapon. And so you're afraid of your body, you're afraid of other people's body, you're terrified when none of that's actually true, that there is no evil entity, sickness that can jump from one person to another. That is all, you know, experience and adaptation and looking at the psyche, looking at the soul, looking at your experience, looking at so, something so much deeper than the material particles that might be sloughing off of the inside of your nose. Yeah. And in the words of Dr. Hama. All so-called diseases have a special biological meaning. While we used to regard Mother Nature as fallible and had the audacity to believe that she constantly made mistakes and caused the breakdowns, we can now see, as the scales fall from our eyes, that it was our ignorance and pride that were and are the only foolishness in our cosmos. Blinded, we brought upon ourselves this senseless, soulless, and brutal medicine. Full of wonder, we can now understand for the first time that nature is orderly, and that every occurrence in nature is meaningful, even in the framework of the whole. Nothing in nature is meaningless, malignant, or diseased. Mic drop. Exactly. I mean, it is. And he had ex- exceptional insight. You know, he was, he was through this tragedy, was given such a gift. He became this channel for infinite wisdom, um, infinite intelligence, spoke to him and said, hey, this is, this is the map. This is how the tissues work. This is, you know, what I just there. I don't know any other system that is so integrated and so rooted in all of the universal laws and principles, and uh, and this deep esoteric wisdom and also biological kind of scientific knowledge that exists about physiology and tissue and histology and embryology. It's like it brings together everything. It brings together the spiritual with the physical, you know, and it and it shows us how like our bodies are this materialized consciousness and it's all but the root is in consciousness it's not in the material and that's where people get it wrong is when they look to the material and they think that the consciousness just kind of randomly evolved out of the material rather than the material is the condensation of the organized consciousness you know with the walter russell and the light it's like it's it's the light the light is it's all made of light and so it's when we distort that light through living unbiologically that we express the adaptations. And so like you can take it at so many different levels and it's just so fun to 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 see how consciousness is expressed in physicality. And that's what this map, that's what this knowledge is, is how consciousness has has chosen to come into physical form and how it has chosen to live in this like, I mean, your body is a transformer. It can adapt itself. It can grow. It can shrink. It can change. It can change its functionality. Just think about how cool that is, that the biology has the capacity to change its physical form in order for survival to take place, survival and reproduction. All right. You know, I, I love 
I had this vision of creating like a cartoon. So anyone listening to this, if you want to help me make this, um, of like, uh, there's this movie called Osmosis Jones. Do you ever see that? It's, um, it's Bill Murray. Um, and basically it's like inside this guy's body and it's, it's got a virus orientation, but it's like going into the body or like the magic school bus of like going into the body and seeing what the body is doing, going through. All right. This lady, her son swallowed a penny. All right. We got to prove that the body has to produce more salivary juices because we need to do anything we can to help. And this is what the body, the body can't go outside of you. All it can do is change what's going on in here. And so, but it's going to do it because it is all about life. And so, I mean, there's so many beautiful things to recognize about yourself, about existence. Uh, when you see that meaningful, purposeful, beautiful life principle just being expressed through every program that we can run. Hey, yeah. if, you, if you want to script it, I'll help you find an animator and get it in, get it in the works. I mean, yeah. I, I think none of these ideas are random. Let's move forward wherever there's inspiration for sure. Here for the truth, executive producer, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. No, for sure, though, like, just appreciate you so much. Thank you for being a gift. Thank you for playing a role in, in getting people to become more familiar with this knowledge through your advocacy and through your generosity, you know, and just loving to talk about it um, all the time. I just really appreciate you. Um, so if people want to connect with you more, uh, learn more about this stuff, um, where can they find you? Yeah, DrMelissaCell.com, my Instagram, DrMelissaCell, YouTube. Um, I have a class that meets every week on Mondays called Language of Adaptation, where we just, you know, we unpack this, we go deep, we ask questions and go through, you know, we share experiences. Um, so, you know, this is a great place to get out of isolation with your conflicts. If you come and talk about it, it's a really great um, place for for that. And yeah, I've got a lot of different courses, so many places that you can get in. Very huge news, actually, this week, forever, this big chart behind me has been out of print because they've been in the process of um, editing and updating it. But it's like, you know, a year and a half ago, I was like, oh, it'll be here in June. It'll be here in July. Uh, but it's finally here. And you can actually order um, on the amici-ddi-dirk.com website. You can order the chart. And so you'll have your very own chart and big poster to put on the wall. And so that's um, very exciting news. And I do have the link to that if you go to my blog and you're looking at the getting started with um, dramatic healing knowledge, you'll find that there. Amazing. And just to close, like I really want to hold reverence and honor the legend and the genius that is Dr. Hama that brought this into fruition and, and, and gave this to us. And I think really holding the masters of the past in esteem um, for what they went through to materialize something that is tangible for us to understand ourselves and the cosmos better. Um, cannot be understated. Um, so in tribute to the work that he did, all these episodes obviously stand there as well. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much once again. Everyone else, thank you for listening. Share this episode. Getting mm -hmm. people introduced to GNM. We created this episode as a basic, as a foundation, as an entry point, people to discover this knowledge and attain a greater level of empowerment on all fronts. Thanks for your support. We appreciate it. Take care. Bye. What an amazing episode. I mean, this information, this knowledge changed my life. It has impacted so many people's lives that I've shared it with. And it's just, I don't know, it's just incredible to realize the, the, the genius and the intelligence of the human form and to take ownership of yourself and to be embodied with this knowledge. And I just want to, I want to reiterate, you don't need to get overwhelmed with this information. 
there's complexity to it, of course, but just the simple fact of understanding the fifth biological law, like Melissa said, and taking it into your life and and truly like knowing it and like re releasing fear. Like imagine if you were able to like take away 10, 20, 30 percent of the fear, conscious or subconscious that exists in your life. Like what would life be like? You know what I mean? So like this, this knowledge is, 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 is so important. And, you know, I will continue to share it. I will continue to learn more about it. And I just like, like the piggyback, what Joel said, like share the episode, especially to someone who's curious and open and, and, and can take in this information. Like to me, like, this is like the answer to the great mystery that everyone's running around looking for, you know, when it comes to human health and, and human biology. And here it is, you know, curated and handed to us nearly 40 years ago now, you yeah. know? And it's like, yeah. And I, I don't, I also want to say like, like anyone who knows me knows us, like we're not about dogma. Like this is, right. inf this is knowledge. These are laws. This is, this is information that can empower you. But are there still questions? Are there still mysteries? Does GNM answer every single health conundrum that's out there? No, there's, there's complexity. There's nuance to a lot of this stuff, you know? I, and so that's a very, very profound baseline for the majority of what we experience and sometimes can't explain. And it doesn't leave consciousness at the door. Too many systems out there, too many modalities generalize or are very vague. And there's a, there's a specificity to, to GNM, GHK that I think can't be overlooked. And um, yeah, I'm excited to be able to be in this position to have this conversation. So, so grateful for Melissa. And excited to see how, you know, people react to this, this specific episode, because we have four other ones on that relate to different aspects of GNM. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks again for listening to an awesome episode. You know, we love that we get to, to do this and bring this knowledge forth and hold these conversations. If you'd like to step one step further, you know, into our world, we have our membership community, Friends of the Truth, where we discuss a broad number of topics. Um, we actually do a GNM call per month, and we have a GNM thread ourselves where um, you know, we have seasoned GNM experiences and learners answering questions and helping to shed light on different things, plus everything else we're into, human design, self-empowerment, you know, entrepreneurship, whatever it might be. But if you want community, it's 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 the place to be for sure. Can't speak highly enough of what we've built and just the value uh, and the integrity of of our members. So you can learn more by hitting the link in the show notes to Friends of the Truth membership community or at friendsofthetruth.co. Please, one more thing, if you get a chance, rate, review, subscribe, share. That's how we grow. That's how we bring this knowledge out there even further. Take care. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward and evolution.